Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Whoa, it's musky madness, musky madness. Are you in town for the musky madness? Put your poles in the water and catch a big musky. <laughs> Roger. Was that a jingle actually featured in the <laughs> film or did you just, did you just it, pull that it out It should have been. It should have. I just pulled it on my ass. It was in the film. <laughs> it should have totally been the opening number for the film. It's muskies, Roger. You, you're from the Midwest. Have you heard of a muskie before seeing this film? I absolutely have fucking not heard about a goddamn muskie. And let me tell you, Troy, I cannot think of anything less interesting <laughs> than the events taking place within this film that take that involve this muskie fishing festival that appears to take place. I mean, I, this strikes me as very Canadian. Is this a Canadian film, Troy? No, it was filmed. It's an American film. It was actually filmed in a small town called Hayward, Wisconsin, which currently to this day holds the record for the largest muskie ever caught. The 63 pound muskie was caught by this gentleman back in the 50s. And to this day, it holds the record. And the town, this little town, Roger, is so proud of this record that they constructed this giant fiberglass muskie in the center of their town that you see featured prominently in the film. That is, I would say what appears to be the most expensive thing about this movie is that goddamn, that goddamn fiberglass muskie. <laughs> but like what, no matter how exciting that <laughs> muskie museum may be, <laughs> I am sorry. The, 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 this movie in general is just, a bunch of really boring people, <laughs> very blase people talking about boring things, doing boring shit, and, and it goes way too long, way too long. This movie clocks in at a breezy hour and 50 minutes. <laughs> yes, this, folks, this movie is is reaching the almost two-hour mark. It clocks in at an hour and 51 minutes. This is a 1986 slasher movie. A slasher movie, first of all, a slasher movie to be two hours long, any time, any, in any time period is just wrong. Even though, I mean, Scream, the Scream, Scream 2, we're, we're, we're pushing yeah, that. But Troy, Scream had something this, to say. This movie doesn't, <laughs> I assure you, does oh, not. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. We got Bev, we got Finner, we got Kirsten, we got a, a whole array of just colorful characters. I might disagree with you there because I do not. I actually do not think these characters are boring at all. But we'll get there, um, folks. Hey, welcome to the latest episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. If you have not figured it out, we are discussing the 1986 trauma-produced slasher flick, Bloodhook. God damn it, trauma. 
<laughs> but you know what? It doesn't. I still don't. I still do not think this feels like a trauma film. I really. Oh, don't. I don't know, Troy. I feel like Blood Hook feels right up trauma's alley. Mm, the only know? thing, the thing about Blood Hook that doesn't feel necessarily trauma is the fact that it's shot maybe just like a pinch better than the average trauma film. Uh, it doesn't look horrible. But as this movie goes on, it is it is mind-bogglingly bad, at least in my opinion. But hey, that's what we're here for, is to talk about our thoughts on this movie. And you were, you were about to uh, mention the director. I did not. I'm sorry. I didn't look into any of the talent involved. I didn't look into anybody behind this. Though I kind of want to, because I'm shocked that this got made. This slasher film revolving around this fucking musky competition. <laughs> Yeah, no, the director is uh, Jim Mallon, who ironically went on to produce Mystery Science Theater 3000. This feels very Mystery Science Theater. And voice one of the uh, prominent characters in, in that series. So I just found that was interesting because that movie generally, or that that series and the film is ba- is based around making fun of bad films. And many people do consider Bloodhook to be a very bad film. So it's just interesting that he is, this was his claim to fame um, because he never really directed another feature film. I don't think outside of this film before going into mystery science theater 3000. So it's interesting that they saw this gentleman's work and was like, yes, he's the one that we're going to bring on for, to make fun of bad movies because obviously he would know about a bad movie. I, I will say like one thing about this movie is I went in as you do with a trauma film. And as I was expecting, based off the absurd poster art uh, available on Tubi of the young woman in like midair, like <laughs> with her with her bikini top <laughs> getting torn off, screaming, I, I I anticipated like a slapsticky, like cracking all kinds of jokes, and it's going to be real funny and real absurd. What I did get is a lot of absurd, but what I didn't get was like the sense of humor I anticipated. One thing about this movie that is surprising is it it seems to take itself rather seriously. That is I'm that is my big really Roger I'm glad you mentioned that right out of the gate because that is my that's going to be my big overarching theme in this discussion is is how seriously this film takes the content. I really feel that reading the screenplay you can see there is a lot of humor and absurdity injected in the screenplay, a lot of regional uh, humor, because this film does take place in Wisconsin. It was filmed in Wisconsin. Actually, many of the actors in this film were, were locals that had never acted before and never acted since, thank God, in many cases. Yeah, you don't say. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I feel like, I just feel like in the hands of the right director that understood the absurdity in the script and the satire in the script the film could have ended up being much more of an enjoyable experience than what it ends up being because this director decided to go the completely opposite route and take this material super super seriously and i'm sorry it's really hard to take a film seriously when the killer is actually killing people with a giant fucking fishing lure in the most absurd ways. So I think that's the film's biggest issue is there was a disconnect between the director and the script. Honestly. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely a, the, the fact you would voice that, that you would think to say that as you look into this, cause I did not really, I had an issue with a lot of the dialogue in general, because one of the issues with this film, and even though the restoration seems to look pretty damn nice is 
I'd say about a third of this dialogue is so poorly recorded or so mumbled that I don't really know half of the things the people here are saying. For all I know, it could be quite funny. It could be hilarious. But half the time, people are crying, weeping, screaming. There's a lot of emotions in this movie, like unexpected. People are very emotional. uh, And a lot of things just don't translate. A lot of things that are being said do not translate. There's plenty of inaudible conversations in this movie that you can't really fully comprehend what these characters are trying to communicate to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I get, and and again, I think that goes back to the director in a, in a better director's hands, he would have recognized that these characters were mumbling their lines because Roger, it's not a sound issue at all. It no. is a, it's an actor mumbling lines. Yeah. And a good director would have recognized that uh, because you are right. There are about five points in this film where characters are saying things in a very heightened emotional state and you cannot understand a fucking word. In fact, when we get to that point, I'm, I'm going to point it out because I was super confused. I had seen this movie years ago when I was a kid. Uh, I'm talking probably early 90s, and I hadn't seen it since. I just remember it. So I wanted to cover it because I was thinking of what is a good film? You know, it's March. It's like spring break season. I just got back from a wonderful spring break vacation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In Hawaii. Woohoo. Uh, and. So I was like, when I was thinking about March, I was like, what is a kind of a good spring break themed film? And this one just popped into my mind because for some reason, and apparently I was wrong because spring break is never mentioned in this film. But for some reason, I thought I remember this film taking place during spring break and this musky madness tournament was going on. And that's why these kids were in town for their spring break. Totally missed the mark on that. So I apologize because this is really not a spring break film, but still it fits fit. what, What better, you know, activity during a spring break? Than to fish for musky. I don't know. <laughs> are, are, are we sure on that, Troy? <laughs> but we're going to get into the film. Let's. Let, I, I'm eager to jump right in, but let's do our typical, you know, plugging of our stuff, guys. Of our wares. Well, we, because we, I'm really excited, and I know you are today, because we we checked yeah. our um, iTunes, Apple iTunes, Apple Podcasts, not iTunes, but Apple Podcasts. We checked, and we actually have two two new five-star ratings and one actual review oh my god i was tickled pink troy and i were strutting around troy and i have this gift that we said to each other that's of these goats the goats strutting around the goats that you know the goats that strut in unison every time we feel like we've succeed succeeded at something uh we send the goats and today was let me tell you there were a lot of goats today (laughs) there were a lot of goat gifts and there's a lot of reason to celebrate and we are thankful for that wonderful thank you write-up. thank you wax dude 72 for your awesome awesome uh review and we are glad that we make your 30 minute commute more tolerable you said some wonderfully great stuff about us and we certainly appreciate it and whoever gave us the uh, five-star review thank you or five-star rating thank you so guys very simple go to apple podcasts hit the little five stars Submit a rating if you're inclined to write us a review because it really does help because there are millions of podcasts out there. There are hundreds of podcasts with gay themes running through them. We know that. You know that. Um, and what what gets us sort of to populate when people search for gay horror podcasts, 
higher up in the rankings is the number of five-star ratings and reviews we have. So that's why it's important to us because, you know, Roger and me are not professionals. We don't have anybody. We don't have any big studio or big site backing us. We're doing this out of our fucking living rooms, uh, you know, so it, it really does help us. And yeah. if you really do enjoy yeah. our content, we do have the Patreon, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast, where we currently have, oh, what, 16 total bonus episodes, mini episodes, and full length episodes to indulge in. So check that out. Join our Patreon. Yeah, that's a lot. It is a lot. It is. I can't believe we've done that. I can't believe it's been that long for, for us to accumulate. I know, but here we are. Here we are. And, yeah. you know, it's almost April. You know, we, uh, this year's flying by, we have some wonderful stuff coming up related to the podcast in June. We will be, or July, it was June last year, July of this year, we will be at the Houston horror film festival, which I actually, I co-run the Houston horror film festival. I'm in charge of like the film selections and all the film screenings. So if you, if you're an independent filmmaker or screenwriter and you have a film, Go to Film Freeway, Houston Horror Film Festival, submit it to us for your chance to screen it. I'm in charge of all that, but we have already, we have a lineup that's fucking amazing. Daniel Harris, Scout Taylor Compton, all kinds of people. So, but me and Roger will be there also representing Dark Knight of the Podcast. So super excited about that. Yeah. Oh my God. And every day I'm counting down the minutes. So I think it's going to be a really good time. I know. And in two weeks from now, we're going to be in Vegas sitting by a pool together. Oh, the first time up in Vegas, the first time we have actually (laughs) seen each other because we don't I don't know if you guys don't know this now, but we do not we don't live in the same cities. We we record these episodes remotely. Rogers in Cleveland. Currently, I'm in Iowa. Um, Not for long. Yeah. So we we have not me and Roger have not actually seen each other uh, in person for about what? Two years, three years now was when we filmed teacher shortage. Teacher shorts we shot in 2000, was it 18, 19? So it's been, yeah, so 18, it's been yeah. It's 18. It's been quite a while. So we're, Look at us. we, uh, we thought it was time to, yeah, you know, actually meet up and, and have some fun because we've been doing this podcast for over a year now. So yeah, we deserve to treat ourselves. Exactly. So rambling on you guys probably are like we don't give a shit just get to blow it because we want to hear about these but there will be an episode let's that has a reason Troy. there will be an episode in las vegas don't doubt yeah that. oh yeah there is a reason why we're mentioning that and you and our 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 april picks are going to be very vegas themed as well so and we're yeah we're gonna have a episode that we get to actually record together so woohoo Anyway, I, we know you're dying to hear about these giant fucking muskies. <laughs> and that's all. So That's all people want to hear about are those damn fish. <laughs> so without further ado, let's get into 1986 slasher film, Bloodhook. Right away, Roger, the film opens with a very generic title sequence. It literally is just a black screen with white letters that turn red. Yeah. One thing that I noticed right away... Upon multiple viewings of this film is the opening piano slash synth score right away make the film sound super serious. It does. And the scene that unfolds, I I really went into this expecting something hilarious to happen. And this scene plays very dry and very straight to the fucking point. Yeah. I mean, you get the you get a little boy riding down the car. There's this weird fucking. I don't, I've never seen this. I don't, I don't live in what I don't live in the lakes of Wisconsin. So I'm not familiar with this, but there is like a, it's like a mining cart 
that that goes from the house down the down the side of the hill to the dock because this house is on a a, a lake in Wisconsin, and it starts with this little boy just riding it by himself. Can we? also talk about how this film has the most unattractive children i've ever seen in my life in it well and i was like oh my god well, here we are with the children again they're not even cute children like it, well, uh what was the movie um no at, at one point because there is there's a baby involved oh in we're gonna don't don't even, don't don't no no just say well, no, i'm never in it i'm never in it but i was really expecting to get some um some blood feast vibes. <laughs> like, cause like, like, Oh God, here we are with a baby. We're gonna be stuck with this fucking baby for the whole thing. But luckily that's not the case. No, but this little boy's riding this thing down by himself to go watch his grandfather fish on, on the boat dock. And there is a lovely song that we luckily lucky viewers are treated to about 50 fucking times throughout this film. And it's called, what's it called? Fishing for your love. But yeah, it's Vic- like, by, only- Vic- <laughs> by Vicky Lee. It's that's her it's, name. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's one of the only songs that exists in this this universe because everybody seems to have access to this song. It's on every fucking radio. It's in every <laughs> single every cassette player on every record player. Everyone's got this goddamn fishing song. Yeah. Well, the grandpa's listening to it. The little kid shows up and finally gets down the the, the hill off of this cart thing. And he's like, Grandpa, what's that? And he's looking at this old-fashioned, like, it's not even a a record player. This is like one of those old, like, tape recorders where you have two round tapes that are, like, going. It's like you would see in, like, old police procedurals when they're filming police interviews. I didn't know that shit played music, but apparently it does. The Grandpa's showing him how it gets, how it plays the music, and he can make it go backwards. And the kid's just laughing his buck-tooth ass off. And all of a sudden... The cicadas, which are also very prominent in this film. And, you know, cicadas must be a heavily Midwest thing. I mean, I grew up in Iowa. I lived in Texas. I never heard them in Texas. It wasn't until I came back here that you hear them constantly. And they must not be in Canada either because I have a friend that visited me from Canada and was like, oh, my God, those things are annoying as fuck. But they're very loud. There is a very, like, hum, like, but we start to hear these and the grandpa like starts to like shake and go to the edge of the, the dock and is grabbing his head and literally just falls into the falls off the dock into the water and sinks. And all we see is his hat and the poor little boy walks to the edge and sees his grandpa's hat floating there. And grandpa's nowhere to be seen and runs assumedly back up to his house. And that's the, that's the opening scene. It's very unclear to you, the viewer, what's happening. Uh, you're not sure if maybe this man had an aneurysm. It's rather clear that the song is somehow playing a factor, but did the song give him the aneurysm? Yeah, you're left to figure a lot of things out. There's a lot of holes in the cheese. And then the child turns and just runs off very awkwardly, which is like exactly what a child would do in this case, I'm sure. But... Uh, yeah, it leaves you with a lot of questions, which is not necessarily a bad thing to start off a movie with questions. But I gotta say, the kid in these flashbacks is already way more interesting to watch than the grown-up version we're about to meet. Oh, god. oh my god. Oh my god. We'll get there. We'll get there. But just get... What what a what a wet blanket! This <laughs> totally. Oh my god! Oh, well, he, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I just need to make it known. 
this child, you know, normally it's the opposite. Like, normally the kid is always obnoxious, and then the adult version is more palatable. In this case, like, I would have rather watched this this uncomfortable-looking, bowl-haircutted child for <laughs> a, the, the length of the two hours running about causing mischief than having to be subjected to watching this this Chewbacca-esque man <laughs> with his, with his uh. sad... Debbie Downer face. Just he's so miserable. We'll get to it. I'm sorry. I'm ahead of myself. Well, we're getting there right now because the film cuts to 17 years later. Which I really when I first when I saw this, I'm like, 17 years. That is a really odd number to pick. Yeah. You know what I mean? Usually it's like, oh, 10 years later, 15 years later, 25. No, it's 17 years later. But it does actually, it does come into play. It does come into play. But I, I immediately thought, um, this is weird. 17 years. Okay. So there's a truck driving along. There's two songs that are played predominantly in this film. One of them is Fishing for Your Love. And this the other one is whatever the fuck song this is playing that, again, Everyone in this film has access to it's by a band called like the red echoes or something. And it's like, it's throughout the whole fucking film. Those are literally the only two songs. Like the only songs in this universe are those two songs. And they could not be more different. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) There's, we get introduced to our five main young adult characters. Okay. So we have, Okay, let's go through them. We have Finner, Rodney, who is like your a cutie. I, okay, I was I was wondering if you were going to think that. I oh. he is looking damn good. He he's he's like playing this like Valley Boy, like exaggerated Valley Boy, and he's actually not a bad actor. Um, and he has a he literally. I'm sorry, he has a gorgeous face. Like oh my god, that face up those close. Lips. Y- yeah. Yeah, those are lips that need to be giving kisses. Uh-huh. Those lips and his girlfriend, his girlfriend Kirsten. Oh this my fucking god, pre- this broad, this prima donna. Good god, <laughs> she's a pill. This girl is a fucking pill and a half. Oh, okay, so and then we get Anne, sensible. I like Anne. I I I, I liked Anne. I didn't like Anne the first viewing. I've, I watched, guys, I literally, I just told Roger, Roger this before we recorded. I watched this film a, a total of four times in two days. I don't know how. How do you have enough time in the I, day? Well, I just. <laughs> it's endless. This movie is endless. I know, I know. But I wanted to, because it's so long, I wanted to make sure that I, and it, it does get a little convoluted. So I wanted to make sure that I was like. A little? <laughs> Exactly. A, a little convoluted. I, I wanted to make sure I had all my details. I'm doing it for my uh, Roger. I'm doing it for the audience. I'm putting myself. This through. movie is convoluted. Is putting it lightly, Troy. But yes, okay. I yes, four four viewings is I would say required for this film if you're trying to put together. I would something that if, resembles a storyline. If Tubi gave those, you know, top fan badges like Facebook does, I would have one for this film. Um, and a first viewing, I was like, Oh God, Anne's a fucking bitch. Actually, I liked her a lot by the, by the fourth, because she is the most sensible character. Oh, she is. She's the one I can like tolerate the most out of everybody. And those, let's talk about those earrings and those like lightning ball earrings, (laughs) those like zigzags or whatever they are. Yeah. And then we get Peter. I have so much shit to talk about Peter. I can't, I don't know where to begin. Like, and I, okay, so you you said you don't find this cast 
to be like bland or boring. And I'll say this. Besides him. Well, Besides he's him. like watching paint dry. <laughs> he's like the color like taupe from head to toe, including his skin color. He is just so blasé. He always dresses like he's going on safari. But I don't even... Uh, listen, this cast, it's not that mo- the majority of them are bad. It's not, that's not the case. It's not like the actors are horrible. What is, I think, the biggest problem, and I'm going to put it right out there right right from the beginning because it is constant through the whole film. This is a script that needed about four additional edits. There is so much unnecessary banter and dialogue that is just disposable, disposable scenes, full sequences of dialogue that just go nowhere, mean nothing. And they make the characters seem really boring. They, I, they really do because it's just like, in incessant bantering it has it doesn't lead anywhere there's no real purpose to a lot of these little moments i think they're trying to really make them seem like i don't know more fleshed out characters which i guess i can give credit toward but it oftentimes does not land and doesn't work and it just really makes you like bored i mean i left a lot of these scenes feeling very unnecessary you know but we are introduced to these five young kids that are going to spend the weekend at this house that Peter inherited. And it's very it's it's revealed pretty quickly that Peter is the little kid from the beginning of the film um, and that he inherited this house because his nobody else wanted it because the grandfather was never found. Although the very next line when Peter's like, oh, well, I haven't been back here since my grandfather disappeared. And like, oh, well, you're just feeling guilty for your grandfather's death. So it goes from disappearing to death within a span of a sentence. But he, but the body of the grandfather, point, case in point, the, the body was never found. So they don't know if he's dead or not. Okay. So he inherited the house. They're going to spend the weekend in it. And it just so happens that the same weekend is this the small town's musky madness tournament what a treat which is basically the town folks competing to try to catch the largest musky and whoever catches the largest musky that weekend wins five thousand dollars which hey for 1986 that was a pretty penny that was a pretty penny there is a after we get introduced to these five characters which we will talk heavily about there is a hard cut to this poor fish getting its head chopped off a real fish. But yeah, it's dead, but it's getting its head chopped off by Lutke, Leroy Lutke at his little roadside bait shop. And as he's cleaning this fish, a giant RV pulls up. <laughs> oh, do we need to talk about this family? <laughs> this, you know, first thought when this family pulls up, I got a real Memorial Valley Massacre vibe. Like, this whole setup's feeling very Memorial Valley Massacre. But, like, it's shot just a pinch better than Memorial Valley Massacre, so it gets it gets points there. This family arrives, and they are... I mean, this family's just miserable. Everyone in this family is pretty unlikable. The father, I think his name's, like, Irv. He's a dick. Roger, no, his name's Roger. Oh, he's Roger. Okay, so the, the kid fu- is Irv. The kid is Irv. The kid is Irv. I'm getting them all. Confused. The kid is the the kid is the worst actor ever to grace the fucking screen of any film. Uh, no, no one in this smaller unit can really. Oh, this kid though. But this kid, for some reason, they picked him to be like the prominent one of this family. He has several scenes throughout this movie. He delivers his lines. 
I, I can't even explain it. So fucking awkwardly. He mispronounces stuff. He stumbles. And again, at not one point did the director like say, cut, let's do that again. Can you pronounce this correctly, maybe? Or I I noted it that the kid gives the performance of somebody's 47-year-old drunken uncle. Like yes. there's so, he he like when he speaks, he has he he speaks like as though he's like if a significantly older man, not like necessarily in his voice tone, but in his delivery. And he just like sits there like with like this, like kind of glazed over smile on his <laughs> face. Like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's weird. It is weird. Yeah. Well, it's it upon fourth viewing, <laughs> upon fourth viewing of this film, I really started to like, just pay attention to certain shit. And like every time this kid was on screen, but he didn't have a line, I was just watching him and he looks totally uncomfortable like he doesn't know what to do he's like looking around he's like putting his hand in his pocket pulling it out real he doesn't know what to do nobody has given this poor kid any direction so he's just standing there looking like a goddamn moron for half the time but they get out uh introduce themselves to to lukey the dad uh, comes out actually the dad comes out screaming because there's no signs that are pointing him to the actual dock where this whole musky tournament's taking place and lukey is being the most kind patient man with these people uh the dad's like do you have bait i want some bait the fucking daughter gets out all she's saying is she wants a diet fucking soda the mother steps out in her big fucking balloon shorts we find out this mother is obsessed with loons i don't okay (laughs) we're that's an, an unexpected hobby but i'll run with it uh, and then the, the, the dad, like, I'm really just, I'm baffled how this man manages to remain in a relationship with this poor woman. Oh my God. Well, she, ru- she, she, she runs off later. In the she film. does, but he, well, she runs off cause she hears the loons. She's lost. She's lost in her own dream world. Uh, but this guy's a fucking sourpuss. He's so miserable. And he's in that goddamn hat, that like newsboy hat. It's it's a horrible look on him, but yeah, he's a very unhappy man. He's miserable through the whole film. Every time he's on camera, he seems pretty sour. Yeah. Ludke, uh, the little boy finds this fucking, what is it? It's a stud finder. I mean, I wouldn't mention it except it does come into play later in the film. And he's like, Oh, what is this? Lukey's like, Oh, you hold it up and you, it, it tells you where the uh, nails are so that you can, you know, know if you're pound, if you're nailing anything in the wall or whatever, you, you know where the studs are. And he's like, Oh, how much is it? Lukey gives it to him. He also gives the fucking family of the minnows with art charging. Oh yeah. He's so generous. And they kind of just like, they shit on blow them off yeah they they, they do they don't say thank you or anything they just get back in their rv and drive away the kids the five main kids show up at the musky madness headquarters where we are first blessed with the presence of this giant fiberglass musky that you can actually walk you can actually go inside it reminded me of the big dinosaur from peewee's big adventure I had the same thought. Do you? Because you could actually go up in it and it's like this just this big thing just out in the middle of nowhere. And it's actually a real thing, guys. If if any of your listeners are from Wisconsin, perhaps, Hayward, Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin, if you want to see this giant fiberglass muskie that was featured in this film, it's there. Lucky you. <laughs> right? We should take a roach. Why are we going to Vegas, Roger? We should be going to see the giant fiberglass muskie. Let's well, you know, plan. Gustavo's flying into Wisconsin all the time with Nestle. Maybe I can 
maybe we can parachute down and just <laughs> land atop it, land atop that giant fish. Only in my dreams. We can start to get introduced at this point to a uh, a lot of the characters. A lot, a lot, a lot. I mean, it it is a lot to soak up. You are going to probably need to watch it four times because there's times <laughs> that they're like, there are so many side stories going on. But one of the first people we meet is this character Denny, who's who's a real egotistical type of man uh, who's who's fishing for biggins. Uh, and you, you you meet him and you think immediately you think this fucker is going to die a horrible death. Like, this is the kind of character who you anticipate to die right off the bat. They choose to not dispose of Denny, which I thought was a... I'm going to just say it right now. Denny doesn't die. Should die. Seems like the perfect kind of character to kill off in a grand way. Uh, But somehow he makes it all the way through. Denny Dobbins. He is the... Denny Dobbins. He is the reigning muskie champion. Finner... Can we talk about Finner? Finner is, I like the Finner character a lot, actually. I just feel like he has this uh, nerdy goofiness to him that makes him very appealing. He's relatable. Yeah, I like the Finner character. See, so when you like said, I, I, I like I like a lot of these characters, honestly. I, mean, I shouldn't say I like them. The two characters that I like are Finner and Rodney. I'm going to say that right away. None of the other well, characters. And, 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 and like Anne. Okay, Anne I forgot too. about Anne. But, but I do find, Roger, I really do. That I really think that these the characters in this film, even these, these secondary characters like Denny, are very colorful and a little bit more well handled than you would see in a lot of 80 slasher films they're oh, given a yeah li- they're given yeah. a little bit more to do um very few of these characters are just there to die you think about all like the friday the 13th franchise or the halloween or a lot of the 80 slasher films where you're introduced to a character they have like three lines and they're dead i will say i will give this film credit yeah. because Every character in this film, the ones, even the one, the ones that get killed have something to do, have a moment. It's not like you're introduced to any like random character. And then the next, the next scene, they're dead. They're, they're all given something to do. And I appreciate that. I might not like them. I might not, I might find them annoying, but I think that this is actually a colorful group of characters. And I dare say, and I'll stand by this. I dare say this is probably the most quirky colorful cast of characters from any 80s slasher film in my opinion Mm, i i think my issue and like i i touched on this earlier but my issue is is more that i feel it's not that i feel that the actors are bad aside from peter because he is literally peter and the little boy yeah peter is just he is a major issue being the leading man in this film and being as weak as he is and being as boring as he is, it definitely brings down the quality of everything else around him. I mean, that's how bad I feel he is in this. That being said, the supporting cast really isn't that bad, but the story is so bloated that I don't think it necessarily does these characters justice. A lot of times, and you know this as a filmmaker, you've had scenes that you've edited down because you've had to help the scene like pace properly or flow properly. Uh, and if sometimes if you let a moment dr- like linger too long, it like loses the magic of the moment, or it just starts to feel like there's excess. And this movie had like whoever edited this had no idea how to pace this type of film or 
uh, let it, you know, breathe naturally. It feels so, like, so much is crammed into it that a lot of times when these people are talking about just nonsense, they're just jibber-jabbering, it loses your interest. They're boring, not because of the, the talent behind the characters, but because of the material they're working with. I did notice in the credits that the, and this is an issue a lot of times, I'm not saying all the time, because I've, but the cinematographer and the editor in this film are the same person. That can be great sometimes. However, other times, maybe in in the case of this film, it can be a detriment because if you're the one shooting the film and then you're editing it, you very well may have an issue with cutting your own work down. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I really think this feels like an example of someone who fell in love with their own exactly. footage. Exactly. Well, if you, it really if, does. If you notice, the cinematographer and edit- editor of this film are the same person. And I really feel like that may be the issue. That this, uh, the, 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 so, so, guys, same person that shot the film actually edited it. That's very uncommon. If you don't, I mean, we're not, I'm not talking down, but it's very uncommon for a film to have the same cinematographer and editor. Generally, they're two very distinct, different skills. When you have a film that is shot by the same person that then turns around and edits it, I feel like this is a case of the person being like, oh, everything is beautiful. I'm not cutting anything down. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I mean, I've seen that firsthand. I've worked on those films. I've been that filmmaker. I mean, it took me a while to learn to, you know, sometimes you just got to let shit go. It's for the betterment of the pacing of the film. You know, they did not learn that here at all. They did not learn that lesson with this film. No. No, there is a, a fun little sequence where Finner shows off his fishing pole. He gets out his fishing pole, complete with a tasseled handle that he screws on. It looks like a tricycle that has all these tassels hanging on it. Uh, and he throws it into the water. He makes the target. And then this Denny character yells at him and says, you can't use a tasseled fishing pole. That's cheating. Peter then gets his pole, throws it, totally doesn't know how to fish. It goes into some guy's coffee. Very humorous scene, right? A fishing lure landed in somebody's coffee, but it's played super serious. So you can't even really laugh at it because it's like it's how it's shot and how it's how the characters react are very is very serious. Then we are introduced to Bev. Oh, Bev. You know, Bev Bev is a flawed character, but I find her to be somewhat enchanting. She is enchanting. She immediately takes a liking to Finner. Gives him a hat and says, oh, my God, welcome. I'm the hostess here. You know, looks like you are on track to be able to beat Denny. So here's a hat. Here's a here's a um, shirt. And then she says very erotically. And she's like, oh, nice pole. I like it. It's erotic, but it's also demure. She's very she's flirtatious, but she exudes like um, this like effervescent quality. But we find out she's kind of a hoe. We find out she's definitely a hoe, which is I actually found to be a, a sad twist because I didn't hate this. I didn't hate this character until her like last. I have, I have, I have a lot to say about. That. Oh my god, I got a lot. You got a lot to say. We both got a lot to say on that nonsense. I don't know where that fucking came from. Talk about a girl who settles for less. But um, <laughs> and speaking of settling for less, the next character we meet is the one and only. Evelyn Durst is this fucking asshole, Evelyn Durst. And I'm, uh, Troy, this actor is giving it his all. (laughs) He's giving it more than his all, let's be clear. Yes, but do you, he is acting 
like he feels like he is a compl- in a completely different film. You know what he feels like is he feels like an '80s version of Jack Black, and I still know what you did last summer when he played the Ra- the Rastafarian man. Ugh, you remember that? That yes, is I the do. vibe I'm getting from this character because he's so out of place. He's so big. He's, I mean, he ain't just chewing on the scenery. There's nothing left but splinters at this point. Like, he is just really taking it to another level that nobody else is on. He is so, like, hyper and he screams his dialogue. What is too bad is that what he is saying sometimes is very interesting and it, it it has a very deep meaning because it I, I feel like it is a statement on like how veterans are treated in this country when they come back from a war particularly like vietnam vets how they were treated his whole character is supposed yeah. to be a statement on that yeah a bit shell-shocked yes but however it's he he it's played so over the top and the actor is not skilled enough as an actor to really project the like the 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 trauma and and the the pain that he has from his experience in war that he instead thinks that screaming incomprehensible sometimes is how he is going to project this trauma that he had it's it's too bad it's really too bad because i feel like this is the one point in the film that was trying to make a a statement and it just it falls flat because the actor they have doing it, it was not was not reeled in or directed. We're going back to the directing directed well enough yeah. to be able to pull it off. Yeah, you're right. Any Anything that any weight this character could have had or possessed is just completely lost. It's so disposable. It's it's he's made to be a very like intolerable, unlikable character. And you're right, like especially with how the story progresses. This is a character that you probably almost would want to have some some sympathy for, you know? But it's completely lost in this over-the-top, larger-than-life performance that just feels very off. You're you're absolutely right. So, yeah, they're int- we're introduced to him when the when the group gets back to the house because Ev- Evelyn, Evelyn is his name, him and his father, Dwayne, who, who we also meet, are, have been the caretakers of this property since the grandfather has disappeared. So when the kids get there, when Peter and, and all the group gets there, they're there. And immediately we're introduced to Evelyn, who is just goes on a tangent about all this shit that we don't care about. Um, it's hard to even understand what he's saying. This is one of the characters you mentioned earlier. It's really hard to understand what this guy is even saying. You catch glimpses of it and you kind of get that he's supposed to be like this, you know, suffering from post-traumatic stress from coming back from the war, but it falls so fucking flat. Dwayne, the father, his father comes out and starts screaming at the group. Rodney is playing, Rodney is goofing off and actually knocks a, uh, pile of firewood over which causes Dwayne to come out and start screaming at him and Peter's like hey this is my property like this is my grandfather's property I inherited it and and Dwayne is like you city folk think you can come here and do whatever you want your grandfather would be so embarrassed of you right away he Peter's like hey you work for me now you need to like tone your attitude down Dwayne's like oh fuck I do and he like throws the key at him he's like I quit well and uh, let's talk about an elephant in the room shall we? And that's the fact that the character of Dwayne is, I'm thinking this is a man maybe in his mid to late 40s playing a character who's supposed to be late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, this movie, 
It's low budget, but it doesn't look like it doesn't look that bad. So you would think that they would have the budget to either, I don't know, procure a wig or maybe just hire a senior actor. But instead, what they do is they put this guy in like like a real like old school like uh, hearing aid and then they like dye his hair and beard with like a, a shellac. Like it's, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm watching a high res version of the latest edition that came out, but it is glaringly obvious that this man has like old age makeup and like hair coloring on to make him look significantly older than he actually is. And it's not like he's giving a bad performance, but the the makeup looks drawn on and the the beard coloration is like chalky it's like actually like you can look you can tell that they like rubbed something in the beard to make it look white and so the color is just this like matte bluish white and there's no like texture or anything to it there's no like salt and pepper it's just one color everywhere around his face and it looks really fake and really bad and it really takes away from the guy's performance and it's again his performance is a little bit big but it's not awful but this makeup just makes it so much harder to watch they go into the house and right away Anne finds this fucking album and puts it on the record player and it's that fishing for your love song that we heard in the very opening of the film it's already bad this song is this song is everywhere yeah. this must have been like a hot hit also the day, every- this house troy this house is the kind of house that the movie sledgehammer really needed to get their hands on oh yeah like this yeah. is the kind of house they wanted for Sledgehammer, but instead they had like like a ranch. This <laughs> this is like a cabin in the woods, and it's actually a pretty cool setting. Yeah, I like the house. They they play the fishing for love song, and Peter goes out to the patio, and he has a flashback of when he was a child and seeing his grandfather fall into the lake. We do then cut to that evening, and the entire group is at a restaurant. That apparently serves only fish because everyone here is eating fish. What in God's name is Kirsten wearing in this? She is sequence? dressed as like Catherine Hepburn going to the Oscars in 1950. She has this white silk scarf wrapped around her head. Uh, she's Kirsten is such an odd character. She's very weird. Yeah. And everyone seems to compliment her on her hair. And to me, it looks like a goddamn mop. Yeah, I mean, she definitely isn't like, I don't know, taking me by storm with her beauty or anything. You know <laughs> what I mean? No, but everyone's like, oh, I love your hair. And it's like, okay, it looks like a fucking perm gone wrong. Like, I, I, I don't understand why everyone is like complimenting on her hair. Yeah, and then there's also her makeup. Like, the factor of her makeup. It's like electric pink and purple at all times. It's it's so bright. It's almost like neon in the camera. Yeah. So they're eating fish at their restaurant. Uh, I don't know. This is an odd scene. Rodney gets up to play the jukebox because it's playing just some old people songs. So he's like, I got to get some energy up in here. And as he gets up, I don't know her name. I'm just going to call her Loon Lady. The loon lady like glares at him because he looks so out of place where he really doesn't look that like he's I mean, the only thing out of place with him, he's wearing a long dangly earring. Yeah, he looks like the way an average gay man would look today, which is very 80s. He's got a see through 
kind of mesh pink shirt, but he looks fucking good in it. I think that old lady's gawking because she wants a bite of what she can't have. Oh, but yeah, she's just she's gawking and glaring. We cut to their table and and this is the same family that was at the bait shop earlier. Okay, so the daughter is complaining about eating fish. Again, there's this conversation where this mother wants to see on Golden Pond again, but she keeps saying Peter Fonda was in it. And her little son, Irving, has to correct her and be like, no, it's Henry Fonda. This is a perfect example of what I mean when I say that there is dialogue in this movie that makes the characters way more boring than they than they need to be. I don't give a fuck about anything they're talking about. I don't care about any of the Fondas. All I care about are people dying. And for the love of God, just kill this whole fucking family. They're so difficult to watch at times. That child. You're right, that young boy. He's so bad. Just kill them. Well, the, They're so disposable. The mother starts actually doing loon calls in the middle of the fucking restaurant. Here she's giving Rodney a dirty look for what he's wearing, but she is... Bl- loudly doing these loon calls in the middle of the restaurant talking about how the loon is her favorite creature and they're so majestic what it what is a loon i, I think it's, it's a, a bird it's a bird correct? it's a sort of bird it's yeah it's, that's what i thought i would this is in my forte loon calls <laughs> and then she runs from the goddamn restaurant in that on um, that let's talk about the ensemble <laughs> well because the husband t- the husband makes a joke well, I don't think he's joking. He's just an asshole. He's like, well, I've had to be with a loon all day. <laughs> and she's like, how dare you disrespect me? Peter Fonda wouldn't talk to Catherine Hepburn that way. This man is a is a dick, but he's uh, uh, no wonder he's so miserable because he's stuck with this dowdy, frumpy woman who is really looks about 20 years his senior. No <laughs> wonder he no wonder this man's so unhappy. Well, I love her shorts. Uh, you would. <laughs> these big, these big khaki shorts. They look like she's wearing a tent. Yeah, they're massive. I mean, you and I could sit in either thigh. Um, <laughs> but so she then she runs down to the goddamn pier with making her loon call, and uh, after talking about Elvis Costello and owls, like literally, these this dialogue is so mundane. It's so mundane. But uh, she runs down to the pier, making her loon calls, and. Peter's watching her from the window. But she is. Do you see how happy she is that they're responding to her? She is. This is like the moment of her life. She's slapping her thigh when the loons are responding to her. This woman goes out in a state of bliss. I'll say that. I mean, <laughs> she's about to die, but she goes out at a, a, a peak moment in her life. I don't think it could be better for this woman. Yeah. And so begins the first of very many awkwardly edited death sequences. And I, I, I don't know that you could have maybe done this. Well, you could have. You could have absolutely done this better. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, but with with the footage, I don't know. They're, they're awkwardly edited. You're, you, you were talking about, folks, you were talking about a killer whose weapon of choice is a fishing pole with a giant like foot-long lure on the end of it that has all these hooks that he actually casts to people. And hooks them with. I think budget limitations probably played a big part in how awkward all of these death scenes look. Because this one is literally ridiculous. She gets the lure wrapped around her neck. And you see like the fishing pole start reeling her in. And there's this really comical scene of her like spinning around. 
it's edited in a way so that the like fishing line gets caught around her neck and it's I think it like she starts getting twirled around in circles because he's like trying to reel her back. But the thing that like is confusing is like it doesn't necessarily hook her. You don't see a hook involved. It's just the line. So I don't like there's not like any blood. That's not like she's getting hurt or any anything. She just gets yanked back into the water. I it it is very lackluster. It, it's very confusing as to what actually takes place yeah she spins around like four times and it's very awkward her hands are out and she just like does this twirl it, it looks so unconvincing and then, and she, then she yeah she, she dives in she dives in it's not even a, like it doesn't even look like she was pulled in this woman literally does a dive into the water and that's it and peter saw it and he thinks he he's like oh my god i just saw something and everyone comes out and just accuses him of being drunk it is a scene, I will say, like, after my first... Because this was my first time viewing this movie. After seeing this scene, I did think, is this really what I'm going to get with this movie? Is this is this how people die here? People just get hooked and lured and yanked into the water so you don't actually have to see any aftermath? And I'd say a majority of the time, listeners, for those of you who haven't seen this, yes, yes, it is exactly what happens. There is some blood. There is some more violence as it as it goes on. But a lot of times, it's just people getting snared and yanked into the water by a fishing pole. It's exactly what it is. Although, I think when the gore... Well, there's one scene that actually makes me cringe. Really oh, bad. yeah, there's a few. Yeah, and we'll get there. But we now cut to Denny Dobbins, who is... We find out he's a cheater. He actually raises his own muskie. Feeds them, raises them to get them really big. He feeds them lots of shit so they get really big. He's talking all sweet to it and shit. And he puts this red clip on it so that he's able to identify it when he goes out to try to catch it, right? Uh, he's he's a cheater. And he talks to that fish for way too long. Oh, my God. Yeah, it goes on forever. Oh, you have a beautiful, look at that beautiful white belly on you, baby. Oh, oh. It's like he wants to fuck it. Dwayne is... Some for some reason at Denny's house, he's peeking into his garage window and sees. And when Denny leaves, Dwayne goes in and gets angry. He's like, God damn son of a bitch and cheating bastard. And he dumps the fucking uh, tub with the giant muskie into the lake. Understandable. You know what? Good on him. I'd be pissed too. If I found out that this man was cheating. $5,000 isn't a, is a, is not a something to throw your nose up at, especially in 1986 in tiny Wisconsin. Back at the house, the kids are having just some shenanigans. There's this weird scene with Rod, Rodney smelling cans. I don't know what that is about. He's trying to guess what he's smelling. Kristen's giving him holding cans in front of his nose. It's like, oh, it's ravioli. It's vegetable soup. That's the extent of excitement this movie is going to offer you at times. Can sniffing. Can sniffing. Uh, That's what these kids his, do for fun. Is this the point also where like you, for a second, you're convinced that Ron's earrings are literally just doubling in size? Oh, yeah. They get bigger and bigger until he's fucking wearing that lure. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's hot on him. I'm going to be honest. It's hot. I'd, I'd say keep it in. That lure. <laughs> Finner wants to go fishing and he's like, let's go fishing, Rodney. And Rodney's like, oh man, I don't know about that. And Finner's like, come on, man. Musky fishing is mean and violent and it gets in your head. Let's go. And he's like, muskies, muskies. And Rod, Rod gets up and follows him and they go out chanting muskies, muskies and leave poor Kirsten sitting at the table by herself. And she's like, 
Oh my god. Shut up. It's fair to say that Kirsten has a very uh unpleasant voice to listen to. Much like myself at times when I get to a certain pitch. Uh and it's shrill and it's just unlikable. And a lot of the reason that Kirsten is tough to watch in this movie is just because she has a bitch voice. She has the voice of a bitch. Um, and she is kind of a bitch, but she sounds even bitchier than she is. She's supposed to be like your, I think she's supposed to come off as like your rich Valley girl. Uh, not even Valley girl. That's the wrong term. She's like the rich city girl who's used to being pampered and probably came from a rich family. So being out in the wilderness and by a lake is way too beneath her. That's how she comes off because she's bitching about everything. The whole fucking movie. Anne and Peter are upstairs, and this is really the first scene that you get to realize that Anne apparently is a psychology major, and she loves to psychoanalyze poor Peter. Um, she is, I, I like this about Anne, like she is, doesn't hold back. She's like, uh, you were hallucinating. Uh, you feel a lot of guilt because you couldn't do anything when you, as a kid, when you saw your grandfather die. And, and basically you don't do shit. All you do is talk about it, but you never do anything. You, you don't make music. You don't tell anybody what you saw. You're basically worthless. <laughs> and it's true. And she's, she's, she's dead on. She Oh, she is. And he's like, God damn you. And he storms out. All this character has the capacity to do throughout the entire course of this film is whine. Peter is whining and being frumpy and dumpy and sad the entire film the whole movie i could forgive it a little bit if two things and neither one of these are true with this guy and i feel bad but i could forgive it if a he was, he was a, attractive <laughs> well, <laughs> i was gonna use that as my b so it didn't sound like a superficial bitch well, i know i know exactly i'll sound superficial this guy's hard to look at this guy he always looks so forlorn Okay. I imagine this man looking out a window on a rainy day and just sighing. You know what I mean. I was going to say A, if he was a good actor. (laughs) Okay. And then B, if he was attractive. He's neither. No, he's not. He's neither. No, he's. And you know what? Or C, if his character somehow, some way redeemed himself at some like Uh, point in the movie, I could maybe get over it. But just, just be warned, listeners, he never fucking does. In fact, he becomes. More unlikable. The, the the more the movie goes on, the more intolerable this individual becomes. Well, he goes downstairs and we get this quick moment where Kirsten flirts with him. And it's like becomes a very regular thing. She's always flirting with him throughout this movie. Finner and Rod are still out fishing in the morning. And he, it becomes clear that he has caught the giant muskie Dobbins giant muskie. Cause he holds it up and it has that red clip on it. And now we do see that rod is now wearing a lure for the earring. It's the earring that it's the lure that they caught this giant muskie on. Bev comes jogging by and they show her the fish and she's like, Oh my God, you guys probably just won the tournament. And she invites them over for breakfast. This is when she's in those rainbow shorts, rainbow right? Shorts. Yes. Oh my god, I fucking love those shorts so much. Yeah, so she invites him over and she's like, You can you need you probably want to take the muskie to headquarters or someone will steal it. And they're like, No, we'll just bring it with us. 
I don't know. So there's this, they, they run after her with Finner carrying this fucking four foot long musky with him. She's like, we got to hurry. My coach is waiting for me. We get there to her house and her coach is basically her baby that she just, (laughs) she just leaves in a crib outside. This woman leaves this child out in the exposed wilderness she just runs off and she leaves it to defend itself and i was expecting for like a hawk to swoop down and carry and carry this baby away into the sky or something this woman because th- yeah. this woman low-key wants to kill this child uh it becomes very obvious that she wants this child dead and she's very she's doing these things hoping that something will come along and kill it or that it will drown Yes, because she leaves it. It's just in this crib outside in the middle of her yard and she's nowhere around. And they even when they get inside, uh, Finner even asks, he's like, aren't you worried that a bear is going to come along and, and, and like take your kid? And you know what she says? She says, well, maybe. But I don't feed him sweets. Bears are attracted to sweets. Bitch, if there's a, if you're saying maybe if there's any chance that a bear could come and get this kid you should not be leaving it outside there that, that is not a rationale to, to stick by bev is a fucking idiot that is not how sweets work feeding your baby sweets doesn't make them sweet the bear doesn't care the that bear will eat any meat you put in front of it especially a supple young baby and this baby is maybe what maybe two maybe maybe this baby is plump and tender and, and and with chubby little arms and chubby little legs and she's just leaving it there for all kinds of nature there could be i don't know alligators they're right on the edge of a goddamn pot well no it's wisconsin there's not gonna be alligators but there are those goddamn massive fish <laughs> what if the baby what if the baby and if we see the baby does get to the water what if the baby got ate uh got consumed by a by a what are the fish called a Oh God! They're big enough. You never no, know. Eat, muskies eat anything too. They eat other. They eat other yeah. muskies. But so they'll certainly eat this baby. Uh, uh, low key, she wants this child dead. Like literally. Yeah, for sure. She wants to be able to live her life baby free. She says, but she even says she's like, well, his mommy has to be happy too. So what am I supposed to do? Like it's the only chance I get to be able to go on a run. And then she invites Finner to go run with her at some point. We should go run a, what does she say? A half dozen miles. Why not just say six miles? I don't know. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Outside, um, Dobbins is out there. All these characters just happen to be outside of each other's houses at the perfect time because he finds, Dobbins sees the red clip and uh, is like picks it up and like glares at the, the house. In the meantime, Rodney and Finner have put on an album, which happens to be the exact same album that we've heard 20 times throughout the film. And they're dancing around to it. And Bev gets kind of short with them about playing this album. She's like, hey, that's my husband's album. I got to take this kid swimming. He's hot and he needs to cool off. There are a few montages here at this point in the movie uh, that are all unnecessary. But at at one point, they literally have us watching about seven different people doing different things. And I don't really know who I'm following. You see Evelyn floating in the water. 
with a in his boat, you see uh you see uh, what's her face? This gal, this one, uh, Bev Cakes. Uh, she's she's you know doing her workout down by the beach. You see the old man in the bad makeup. Uh, he's up to something no good. Ev- I mean, you literally get an update on everybody in this goddamn town. Yeah, you get Anne and Peter back at the restaurant out by the dock looking for evidence that Peter saw what he thought he saw. They don't find anything except like right next to him was this. And we, we get a camera zoom on it was the pin that says save the loons that the, that woman was wearing. So we do get the scene. We mentioned Bev exercising. Bev is exercising in her yard while she is letting her toddler child play in the lake. She's encouraged. She and she folks, she is nowhere near this child. She is way up on shore. She can barely see him. And she's just letting him this. I'm telling you this broad one of this kid dead. And this kid is laughing and giggling and, you know, playing, playing with his ball, getting in the mud. And all of a sudden he gets fucking, (laughs) he gets hooked with a fucking fish, the giant fishing lure. It starts crying and starts crying and she runs down there. Okay. This is the one poor, they should have, you know what? I would have respected this movie a lot more if they would have, if the killer would have been able to like reel this kid into the water and just, and get it real because, because, okay, let's be honest. How are you going to tell me? This killer is able to hook 200 pound men, 200 pound women and reel them in with no problem, but he can't reel in this fucking little 40 pound toddler. Well, I got a few questions for me personally. First of all, where is, where is he? Like, I mean, isn't there, it's a massive lake where is he in the water? Is he like, is he hiding in trees? I just don't know. It doesn't make sense. Is he in a boat? Cause it doesn't seem like they, that he's visible when, when Bev cakes comes running down the hill, she doesn't see anybody. So I'm not, I'm confused as to where he is in location and, and how he's managing to keep himself hidden, but whatever, that's neither here nor there. I, he, he manages to hook the inflatable remember. And he starts pulling it into the water. Um, and then he does hook the baby the second time, but I am confused with the baby being so small. I think reeling that baby in would be, a breeze compared to some of these fucking 40 pound fish or a 200 pound woman. Yes. I would think that would be very easy, but the baby somehow manages to defend itself. <laughs> this one, with a mother like that, that baby has really learned to be independent from a very young age because that mother is, she's smiling and giggling and hoping that he floats away. Well, he, she runs down and gets the baby out of the water and runs away screaming yeah, she's freaking out, and it's like, yes, ma'am, that is absolutely your fault that your child is injured. Absolutely. It's what you wanted. You've been trying to kill this child since the movie started. Why are you pretending now you care? Rod goes to Wayne Durst to ask him to borrow fishing gear, and we get this ominous, you know, Wayne saying, you're from the city. All you do is bring tragedy and, and acid rain and other stuff that tries to kill our lakes. I think what this film is also trying to do with all of these secondary characters doing all these like ominous, horrible things like Denny cheating and Evelyn being like this nutcase war veteran and, and Wayne being this grumpy, like hates everybody. They're trying to give you red herrings, right? Oh, of course. Of course. And Dwayne definitely reads 
like a red herring for sure. Um, I do have to acknowledge that yet again, uh, his makeup is so glaringly bad in these scenes. Uh, and they do some close-ups on him where you really see how like bad this old age makeup is on this guy. I feel so bad for him because he's really trying to give it his all. He's one of the better actors in the film. When Wayne won't oblige with Rod asking to borrow fishing gear, he goes to Lukey's Bay Shop. And there is this funny scene where Rod is talking slang to Lukey and Lukey doesn't understand what he's saying uh, because he's like, Lukey's like, oh, I knew, I knew uh, Van Cleese. And he's like, oh, you guys were spuds. He's like, what? Uh, friends. And this is when you get a lot of close-ups on Rod and you realize just how gorgeous of a man this is. Oh my God. He's so pretty. He's not, he's not an amazing actor, but he's not awful either, but he's just such a fucking I think, beauty. no, I think he's actually really good. I think he gives the vibe off of this like Valley boy that he's supposed to be portraying pretty well, but he's so, so beautiful. Yeah, he really, he really is. is. He is. Uh, and- now I gotta, I gotta ask you Troy real quick at this point, cause this is one of the moments that to be honest, I, between Lutke's accent, which is, I can't pinpoint where that's from. And well, it's supposed to be, have you, you seen know? the movie Fargo? Francis McDormand. It's so, supposed okay, to be that, that Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, accent. I thought it was Canadian. I thought a few people in this were Canadian, to be honest. Well, it could be because I'm wrong. no, I'm just I, that's my. Th- he sounds many times. He sounds like a character right out of Fargo. He even says like, "Yeah, you betcha." He he says that a couple times, and that's very uh, Minnesota. Hayward, Wisconsin, is like literally almost on the border of Canada as well. So uh, it's a very regional, regional accent, regional dialect. Um, but he tells the story here, and you know how we talked earlier about the director not understanding to tell his actors to pronunciate or, you know, speak up. Um, I watched this scene a few times and I still have literally no idea what this man said to this boy. Um, It is very reminiscent of the boy from goddamn sledgehammer where he just talked inaudibly for entire scenes. Um, I don't know what the story is. I don't know what he says. I, I have no idea what what plot points are given. I couldn't tell you, Troy. You're gonna have to. I mean, me. I I I'm in the same boat. It's very difficult to understand the story, and you, I lose interest really quickly because it keeps yeah, going. It keeps going. It keeps the going basic, and going. The and basic going. thing is because okay, so Rodney finds a couple of bullets, right? He's like, "Hey, dude, what do you use these bullets for? Catching fish?" And he's like, "Oh no, we don't use." We don't use bullets here anymore to shoot musky because of something that happened long ago. And what ha- he tells the story of Wayne, the grumpy old man, basically him and Van Cleese, Peter's grandfather, were out on a boat one day and they were they had they had gone out for weeks and had been very successful in shooting musky. Uh, and he makes the comment like it's very dangerous to use a gun on a boat because the, if the boat rocks. You're going to lose aim. And what had happened was they one night they were on the boat. They were going to shoot a muskie. The boat rocked and, and uh, Wayne accidentally shoots the gun, but it hits Van Cleese, Peter's grandfather, in the back. Uh, what happened was it didn't kill him. It lodged in his spine, which you would think would paralyze him. This old man looked perfectly fine at the beginning of the movie, but you, but he apparently 
he refused to allow Wayne to take him to the hospital to, or to do anything to try to get the bullet out and instead gave Wayne a job as carekeeper care, care of his property because he knew that Wayne felt guilty about shooting him. So this old fucker like specifically said, no, 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 leave the bullet, leave it there. Instead, instead, I'm going to make your life one of servitude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Roger, the fact that the bullet we 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 hear new we hear about three different times from the story that the bullet was still lodged in his spine and he refused to have it removed, it becomes the uh, magic bullet is what they call it or special bullet throughout the film. It's the special bullet because it's the same bullet that actually they would sh- they shot this giant muskie with that they would shoot. And every time they shoot shot the muskie, they would dig the bullet out of the muskie and reuse it. So it becomes their magic bullet. I don't know how that's possible. Don't ask me. I'm just telling you what the movie's telling us, but it does become very important at the end of the film that this bullet that we've learned that this bullet has was supposedly still lodged in Van Cleese's back. And we'll get there. I know I had to watch it four times to get this. You're okay. you're doing your homework on this one. I, I'm, I'm going to say it like there's no way I couldn't even make out basic words, let alone that ex- <laughs> that extensive of a of a fucking story. And this man talks for about seven minutes. I, I oh, yeah, it's it. a it's a long story and you get just shots of and it's really funny. The editing here is really weird because this is a very serious story. Yeah. And. Uh, Ludke is telling it very seriously. It's not funny at all. I mean, we're talking about a man that gets shot in a friendship that ends because of it and it not really ends, but, but nothing, you know, their friendship was never the same. Yeah. Okay? Even though Van Cleese left him as caretaker of his property, their friendship was never the same because of the guilt. It's, it's edited really weird because you get intercut with Rodney watch his close up of his face, watching the story. And he's smiling and laughing. Well, then after that, he's like, yo, dude, that's a stellar rad story, man. You should make it into a movie. Like, Yeah, he really is like the complete, like, if you're trying to create like a serious dry tone with the sequence, like having a character like Rodney involved is completely undoing any of that because he's so like, high tides, bro. Like, I mean, you know, he's he just talks like a freaking like, uh like a preppy boy. Like he is all kinds of slang terminology and he's the antithesis, antithesis of, of what uh, Leroy is, you know? So it makes for a very strange scene. But one thing like I kind of liked is that they were giving Rodney some extra focus. I really thought he was kind of going to be stepping up to be what would I think make a pretty fun, enjoyable male lead esque character. And so what happens coming up here is actually very disappointing. Yeah. Well, Ludke does then say, you know, thank you for listening to my story. Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to tell you about my secret fishing spot. So he tells him where to go. He's like, that's my secret fishing spot. Don't tell anybody you're going to be there, but that's where you're going to catch, you know, some awesome fish. And of course, Rodney's like, yeah, man, thank you. And and leaves. And he's like, I'm going to use these bullets for earrings. Okay, Rodney, you do that. Um, We do get this quick scene of Anne meditating while Kirsten is bitching about everything under the sun. She's bitching about how fishing is gross. The lake is boring. There's nothing going on. Anne is like, you know what? Shut the fuck up. 
Basically, because Kirsten's like, oh, what are you meditating about? Are you meditating because Peter is being so antisocial? And Anne's like, you know what? Uh, he, she goes on the cycle babble about Peter. He's like, you know what? You need to be more understanding because Peter is trying to overcome this emotional trauma and him, him fishing and casting his reel is, is uh, an outlet for him to release his grief. And Kirsten like looks at her real dumb and he's like, looks at her real dumb. And she's like, Oh, I thought he was trying to catch a fish again. Scene was unnecessary, but I guess it's a little, you know, I mean, you get, you get, a, a more glimpse into Kirsten's personality. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Well, and that they're, I think, trying to make you feel some like something for Peter. Um, but all it really does is just kind of makes Anne seem a little bit stronger because she's so willing to tolerate his his derpiness. But I think they're really trying to like kind of give the audience a reason to sympathize with his character. It just doesn't translate. Rodney is out looking for Finner to go fishing with him. He can't find him, so he has to go fish by himself. He's not happy. He's like, oh, damn you, Finner. You're letting me down. We find out that Finner and Bev are on a run. That's why he's with Bev. That's why he's not available to go fishing with Rodney. Rodney goes out on the boat, gets in the lake, and then we get this nice little shirtless scene of him because he took off a shirt, jumped in his lake, jumped in the lake in his jeans, that sounds so oh uncomfortable. I, I know. Why didn't he just take his jeans? Off? Everything would be sticking and yeah, lodging things in your you know crotch area, peeling them off, and you know what I'm saying with your with your ball sack gets wet and it gets sticks to your thigh. Okay, I'm going too far, but man, you understand. Yeah, he gets back on the boat, turns his boombox on. It's playing that same fucking song. Do 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 do. He lays down. He, there's this beautiful shot of like a shot of him looking looking down on him. It's a very a Kevin Bacon shot in Friday the 13th that I replicated in one of my actors in Party Night where they're laying down and the camera's basically looking down on them. They have their arms around their head. We, we, we see that for a minute and then he gets up to wipe his face off because he's sweating and we see that uh, the giant lure lands on the um, the chair that he was laying on. And he does not see it, unfortunately, and instead just plops right back down, stomach first, onto the chair, and the giant lure hooks him in the stomach. How does he not see this big fucking? I yeah, I don't know. I guess yeah. I mean, he doesn't though. He doesn't, and it gets it gets pretty bloody. I mean, it's hooked into his stomach pretty damn good, and the the, the killer is yanking the the line and reeling him in to the point where. Blood is gushing out of his stomach and he gets yanked off the boat. How large is this fucking hook, by the way? Like, what is this used to, f- to fish for? Whales? Like, this this, this hook, it is comedically large. It does not look like something that anybody would actually ever use to fish with. And it does make for, I think, a very comical uh, weapon in a movie that you, I, you know, I think in a movie that was handled the right way that would work in its favor. But this film, I don't think it does. I think this film's trying to be very serious. So when you get this massive lure, the size of you know a grown man's face attached to people and dragging them into the water, it's just it's funny. That's all it is. It's just really funny. It's funny, but yeah, in this film, it doesn't have the impact that it could. So after, and I felt bad because I liked Rodney. Poor Rodney's gone. Oh, he was the cutest of them all. Yeah, so he's dead. Peter, Kirsten, and Anne are having a beer outside at a restaurant. 
he hears some sirens in the distance. And this is like one of the prominent parts of the film where we learn that Peter has this ability to be able to identify notes based on just listening to the sound. Of course like he, he does. I am like this. That he's like that's a D. Hear that siren? That's a D major. That's all he brings to the table with this movie too. That's the only. That's all he brings to the table. Identifying notes. Yeah, and he mentioned something called the Devil's Tritone. He's like because he's like here come. He's like starts humming. Here comes the bride. And he's like this is another song with a D major. And he's like if it was two two octaves higher. At the same time, it would be called the devil's tritone, which apparently is a sound that can make people go insane, right? This whole time, Kirsten is like touching him, caressing him, flirting with him while Anne is sitting right there the entire time. And like, let's be clear, Peter and Anne are in a relationship, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. They are. They're not just like tentative lovers. Like, you know, they're, they are actually Full on dating, right? Well, and her and, and Kirsten and Rodney are in a relationship. Yeah, it's very confusing. What we find out the siren was is the fact that co- the cops find Rodney's boat empty, and all that's in it is blood and some empty bullets. And they're the well, the bullets that he took that he was going to make earrings out of. Uh, Peter, this fucking bastard, he has this tendency to just like jump to conclusions about who the killer is like he basically accuses everybody in this film at one point of being the killer oh and he's suggesting he's like to the police he's like we have to arrest this person like four times over that's all he does he he mopes and he makes false accusations the whole movie well yeah because of the types of bullets that were found in the boat he thinks it's evelyn so he's like, we got to go arrest him. So it's like, okay, sheriff's like, whatever. There's no body, but we'll, I'll go. We'll go talk to Evelyn. He gets there and the sheriff's like, you wait here. I'm going to go get Evelyn. He, as, as fucking the sheriff's going in, Peter go, goes to the police car, gets on the intercoms like, Evelyn, come out with your hands up. You're under arrest. Peter is such a whiny bitch. I hate him so much. And then this cop, has he wants nothing to do with this guy. The cop comes out with the gun and he immediately carves into it. It's made of foam. It's a fake prop gun. It's a wood. It's a wooden gun. It's a gun made out of yeah. wood. Yeah. So then, then Peter looks like a fucking asshole, which he is. He absolutely is an asshole. And uh, everyone's basically like, stop being an asshole. And they leave it at that. Yeah, they they go back to the lake. It's a hard, it's a weird cut, but they go back to the lake, and the sheriff is at the lake again. And Peter confronts him again about his lack of doing anything about Rodney's disappearance. And this is this weird, another weird edit where we, we get a close up on Peter's face numerous times talking to the sheriff, which I could do without a close up of this dude's face. Okay, but we get oh, and he's talking right into the oh, camera. Oh, I know he does. Yeah, see, that's another thing. He's looking right into the camera. The director did not direct him to not to look above the camera, so it looked like you were actually looking at somebody and not staring straight in the camera. And he's like, "All you care about is forms. My friend's dead, and you want to fill out forms." And the sheriff basically is like, "Fuck you, kid. Get out of here." <laughs> Meanwhile. We have a situation here, and this is something I'm just very confused about. We cut back to the family, who seems to be trying to get their RV pulled out. And and I, I'm sure maybe they bring it up in a dialogue that I just found to be inaudible and couldn't understand. But do they not seem strangely not concerned with the whereabouts of the wife slash mother? 
they they think the mother went to her sister's house because remember back at the restaurant when the dad makes the comment that he's had to be around loons all day the the mother's like don't you, why do you treat me like that henry fonda wouldn't treat me treat treat me like that he never and the dad is like well maybe you should go spend time with your sister now because uh, i was i've been here to fish i don't want to hear you complain and that's when she's like fine i'm going to go to helen's i'm calling a cab and she gets up from the table so everyone assumes that that's where she went i guess i'm so accustomed to living in an era where you know i can s- communicate with somebody at will instantaneously, over instantaneously. Yeah. um and i guess that makes sense that they would think she would be with the sister i would think that if it, this is a parental figure that they would have tried to have made contact with the mother at this well, point. These none of these family members like each other. They hate all of them. Hate no. each other. Exactly. They're all very unpleasant towards each other. No one cares. No. And the kid is. Oh God, this kid. The sheriff basically s- tells Peter, "I'm not doing anything because we have thirty thousand people in town this weekend, and I'm not scaring them off. This is our biggest event of the year, so I'm going. I'll file the report, and that's it." We do get then a scene of Anne and Peter walking. They must have stopped at a grocery store. They're walking downtown with when Dobbins comes and basically yells at them and attacks them for cheating. He's like, cheaters are not welcome. He like pushes Peter to the ground and knocks his groceries out of his hand. And uh, Luke happens to be there and helps Peter back up when, when little chubby kid also shows up. And there's this moment when Lukey's down on the ground helping Peter up that this little kid, Irv is his name, right? Sees it's like there's this giant square lump on the top of Lukey's head that is basically the exact same shape as the stud finder that he was given earlier in the film. Is he trying to detect a stud in this man's head? I He tries to do it <laughs> a couple times. I mean, is he trying to, like, what... what? So what is he trying to do? Is it ma- like, will it, is it magnetic? Will it stick? I don't understand. I don't, I don't get it. Either. Is he going to literally try to like remove some uh, prize, something from his skull? I'm very confused. Yes. This is the one plot element that I, I did not understand. And it's like this point of view, suspenseful point of view of the child with the stud finder, like moving in on this head. And it's it, very weird. I guess it could be interpreted as it's a, a child it's something a child would do right they see this shape is the same shape of this little gizmo gadget they got so they're going to try to be curious and cute and, and put it on i don't know because otherwise i don't it's i don't know what sense it makes we now cut to kirsten riding that cart down to the dock oh my god troy <laughs> i think these moments in this goddamn lift are somewhat suspenseful, but it takes people so long to get to the bottom. And, and in this moment specifically, uh, Kirsten is just like babbling to herself. Cause she's like sad. Cause you know, her boyfriend's missing. And earlier she had a moment with Anne where she screamed something that I didn't understand at all. <laughs> I didn't either. She was like, I and now she's like sitting there rocking in this fucking lift, like murder, 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 murder. Like you don't know anything this girl's saying. Yeah, I could not. Under- I turned the volume up, and I could not understand what she was saying. There is one point where she says, uh, "I do catch. I did catch one thing," and she does say, "This sucks. I really liked him." 
so she's she's convinced he's dead at this point. So in order to calm herself, she takes the lift down to the to the to the waterfront to go sunbathing and swimming, as you do after losing somebody. People in this film do not cope with losing people in normal ways, by the way. There's another moment later on in the film when you suspect somebody is dead and somebody else makes some really weird choices with how they opt to deal with it. Um, But so she gets down there, she's just floating in the water, just floating around as that killer's just coming up behind her and and trying to hook her. It's super anticlimactic. And then if it couldn't get any more anticlimactic, it just cuts. It just fades. Like there's a quick dissolve before she gets nabbed. This is a really bad edit. Like the, the, the lure hits her and she realizes that someone's trying to, to hook her with this giant lure and she falls off the raft and screams and then, yeah, it just, she looks at something and screams and it just cuts. It's very poorly It's, it's weird. And I think that that's one of my biggest issues with this is if you're going to try to treat this movie like a serious horror film, goddamn, like this is the least intimidating weapon possible. Like it's like the chances of the killer actually getting his victims are surprisingly slim to none yet somehow some way he always manages to hook them but you know he, he, in this moment with her like it, it, it he throws it at her she somehow manages to dot, like miss it and uh we don't really know what happens but you think you do think he got her no well yeah well you there's this whole scene where a montage of wayne out on the boat sharpening his he has the exact same size lure and he's sharpening the hooks with this with this skate with this file. So it's really painting it to be like Wayne is the killer, right? Because right after she screams into the camera and it cuts, we see Wayne carrying this bag from his boat and putting it in a cooler and dumping ice on it. He's like, I finally got that bitch. However, it is very clear that this bag is not the size of a human being. I mean, it's this bag is literally about two foot long, but the, but they're trying to trick you to make you think it's a full grown adult woman that this elderly gentleman is carrying out of his boat. Yeah, it's not a successful uh, distraction whatsoever. Like, you know, this guy's not the fucking killer, uh, but they sure want you to think it. They sure want you to think it. Uh, meanwhile, we got Bev and Finner. They're running. They're being healthy. They're exercising together. And Bev wants Finner to dick her so bad. This girl just wants that dick so bad. And you know what? She gets it. She gets it. She she very flirtily, when they get back to the house to jog, she's like, oh, it's sit-up time. Hold my ankles. And they do sit-ups, and they, they get really close to each other's face, and finally they kiss. And yeah, and they fuck. But after they have sex, Roger, does she not seem a tad dismissive of him? Oh, yeah. She's playing games. She's playing games. She's like, well, I'm sorry. I have things to do, so you're just going to have to go. And he's like, oh, uh, well, maybe I can see you later. She's like, um, well, maybe I'm, I'm busy. Uh, and he's like, oh, okay. And she's like, well, don't get all upset, Finner. I like you. How about midnight? I'd be like, bitch, I do. I, my old ass is in bed at nine o'clock. I am not coming to your fucking house at midnight. What Probably. are we doing at midnight? What is there? Uh, what what are we the, gonna, uh, watch that baby. I uh, fuck that. Fuck you and fuck that baby. There ain't no way. Yeah, we'll take the baby. We'll drop the baby in in the pond with the fish. And then we're going to leave it at that because I don't want anything to do with that goddamn baby. <laughs> and if you're trying to find someone to help raise your baby, you're barking up the wrong tree, my friend. 
<laughs> exactly. So he's mopes away and she's like, okay. Back at the house, Anne and Peter have realized Kirsten has gone missing because all they found was that sensible 20s shower cap that she was wearing with the flowers on it. And he's like, where should, where could Kirsten be? And Anne's like, why do you miss her? No, I'm con- I'm concerned. Well, I think Anne is caught on. Sure. But that, that now's not the time, Anne. I'm sorry. Like people are, <laughs> there is blood. There's blood in the water. <laughs> There's literally blood in the water in that goddamn little canoe that they found. People are missing. There's multiple people missing. I get it, Anne. Like we'll, we'll address this later. But right now, I don't know if now is the time to finally confront the issue that is your frumpy boyfriend. So she goes off uh, bitching about the cicadas because we can hear these cicadas. And she's like, these are fucking annoying me. All you hear is these cicadas. They get louder and then they shut up and then you don't know if they're going to start again. And Peter's like, well, we should call the sheriff. So he picks up the phone to call the sheriff. The phone is dead. Uh, And he's like, God damn, it's not hooked up. And Evelyn comes in. And like starts yelling about, of course the phone is dead. It's the vibrations, the military experience. I goes on this long rambling rampage that I don't even know what he's fucking talking about. The the the, the basis of it is he thinks like government's trying to control people through vibrations and sounds. Blah blah blah. I don't know. His dad comes in. Wayne comes in, yells at him, and basically says. Uh, Evelyn, you're nothing but a fucking loser. You need to quit blaming all your problems on being a veteran. Then on top of that, uh, he the, the the father then has like an emotional breakdown to Anne. He just starts crying. And again, I didn't understand what he was saying. But all I know, he goes from being really pissed to weeping. Like, well, this is when this is when he tells Anne and Peter the story about shooting Peter's grandfather, the exact same story. We just heard Lukey tell to Rodney. We get repeated verbatim in this scene. I thought so, but I didn't, I, I wasn't going to think they were going to give us the same nonsense, but here we are. It's the exact same story. It's the exact same story with the emphasis on the fact that he would not have the bullet removed from his back. So now little Irv, that little fucking kid is at loot keys stealing shit out of the cash register. Just being a nosy little fucker. He comes across a metal helmet that has a bullet hole in the top of it. Uh, and he's trying as Lutke is bent down feeding his minnows. He's trying to f- still put that stud fighter on his, on Lutke's head. Uh, and he doesn't get to cause Lutke gets up and he's like, you should be at home. It's 10 o'clock. Come on. I'm, I'm taking you home. We cut to Finner walking to on his way fishing. He walks by Bev's and he hears laughing from her house. So he goes up to her house and looks in the window. And what is this whore doing? Oh, she's she, Bev is caught canoodling with none other than fucking Evelyn, who is, in my opinion, looks like a caveman. Like Evelyn is so homely and uh, and and very unattractive and she's all over him and finner gets angry and does understandably so i mean finner deserves to be pissed and how is this even a plausible plot twist because bev is an attractive girl what is she doing fucking this this gap teeth no offense to this actor but this very very tough to look at individual <laughs> 
I don't know. And then uh, I, if I was Finner, I'd be pissed too because this is who you told me you couldn't hang out with me tonight because you want to fuck this guy, this crazy. I mean, that's got to be – it's got to be a big dick because there's no other explanation for why this attractive young woman would make time for this ape of a man. Um, and meanwhile, I just want to put it out there for the audience. I just want it to be known at this point in the film. There are still 50 five zero, not 15, 50 minutes left to go. <laughs> there is still that much development left to happen. Uh-huh. We do get Irv, Irv's dad, Roger, stuck out on a boat. It won't start. He is talking to himself like, oh, this is fucking great. And he starts blowing an air horn to try to get someone's attention, but nobody is offering any help because it's the middle of the night. And he gets up, unbuttons his shirt for some reason, and is immediately hooked in the stomach with this giant lure. Uh, and it's again pretty bloody. You get a close up of the 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 hooks inside of his stomach, even though it's with this new transfer and how cleaned up it is. You can totally tell it's the stomach is just latex. But he gets pulled into the lake. The last thing I wanted to see in this movie was Rogers' bare gut exposed to the night sky. Let alone for it to be you know pierced violently by this gigantic lure. Uh, but we do get quite a graphic sequence. And then he is, of course, pulled into the water. Um, prior to this moment, there was a sequence of, of pure seduction taking place between Anne and Peter, in which Peter is just sitting there sulking, as he does. And Anne is comforting him by petting him like a sheepdog. And then she proceeds to just whip out her bajungas. Uh, for him she she just takes her top off and it's this moment it's so uncomfortable troy and i really wanted to take a moment to talk about this um peter has to help her disrobe and in the most robotic and unnatural way possible he like helps her lift her top and then like some uh, proceeds to start to like kiss on her but it looks so unnatural and he looks so uninterested in her that I think that this fucker has to be gay. Like that would explain a lot of the choices that were made for Peter, the emotional breakdown that can, that lasts the entire length of the film. It's just him being sad and weeping or not, but just sulking, being depressed. I really think this might be a gay man trying to play a heterosexual. Well, there is this moment where they do have this conversation and she tells him that she wants to be with him. And he's like, oh, and she's like, well, can't you respond? He's like, uh, I am responding. And he he does basically tell her that he has a huge issue with committing. He doesn't want to commit to her. Yes. And the sex scene with them is so awkward. So well, I awkward. think she she needs to take her lightning bolt earrings and get the fuck out of there, because I assure you, Anne, there are not not to crack this joke. But there are bigger fish <laughs> in the pond. Bigger, better fish. Go catch yourself one, Anne. But also he has this moment where he thinks now that Finner, he comes to this realization after they have sex and they're laying there next to each other. He's like, oh, Finner. And she's like, uh, what do you mean, Finner? She's like, it's Finner. Think about it. He's the only one that hasn't had anything happen to him and blah, blah. You you said it yourself. He's manic depressive. And she's like, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean he's a killer. And he's like, it's Finner. Let's go over to Bev's and make sure he's there. So there they go. Yeah, that was a quick, 
a quick conclusion to jump That's to. Your, isn't this your best friend? Yeah. Like I thought, I mean, this is in your, oh, okay. Back at Bev's place, she's upset and understandably so because she just fucked that haggard caveman mere hours after hooking up with a significantly more attractive man. And she's well aware that she just very much downgraded um, girl fucked up. She made a bad choice, and I don't know why. I, I'm still very confused as to what lured her to this man. Now, there's at one point where her ring comes into play. I believe it's her ring. Is she married to him? I think it's supposed to be insinuated that she's married to him, yes. That she, her and... Her and Evelyn are married. So she's been cheating. Yes. And at the end of the film, remember when Evelyn finds her ring and he takes it, and he's like, look at, he, here's the, here's the, the wedding ring that you helped pick out. They find it. So, so basically she had the kid and now she's gotten back into shape through all this running and everything after having this child while her apparent husband has just spiraled into shell shock insanity uh, and is just becoming progressively more and more of a frump-a-dump. Is what I'm gathering. So, of course, she cheated with that attractive, yet strapping young man who wandered under her property and wanted to go for a run with her and got all sweaty in those short shorts. No wonder they fucked. Yeah. I mean, I, hey, I don't blame her. Uh, But she does decide to go out for a swim. And she puts that damn album on, gets out in the water. Swimming around, she's doing back a backstroke when she is lured, the lured in the back with that giant fucking lure and reeled in. But she actually does get 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 the lure loose from her back, which had to have hurt. But she gets it loose, and as she, right as she gets ready to swim away, she's hit in the face with the boat oar. Two things. First of all, I am confused by the fact that Bev literally only wears workout attire. This entire film oh always everything she's wearing is some form of gym wear in the middle of this rustic rural uh wooded setting and then uh, we also have the, the 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 death itself which is actually looks very painful like the like the fact that it gets basically like hooked under her uh like wing blade you know and on her back um it looks like it would hurt a lot she plays it very well she's not even screaming because she's also trying to swim she's more just like struggling and uh yeah it just looks like a very painful death and it's kind of sad even though she did make a very strange bad choice here towards the end of her journey in this film i still found her to be one of the more likable characters i didn't necessarily want to see her go she's got that baby she has the baby that now that that never comes back into play where's this baby at the rest of the movie because if evelyn's the dad He's apparently not watching the baby because he's out running around trying to find the killer with everyone. Well, and how is he still kicking? Like, let's be real. Out of all the characters in this to not be dead, Evelyn should be dead. Like, he he has been given too much screen time. Well, him and Dobbins should be dead. Yeah. Speaking of Dobbins, the very next scene is they are at the musky headquarters and Dobbin has a musky that looks like it's about a foot long, but comes in at weighing 60 pounds. And immediately everyone starts booing. And because you can tell by looking at this muskie, there's no way it weighs 60 pounds. And that fucking kid, Irv, is there and delivers in the most unconvincing way. He says, that muskie is bogus. It has metal in it. So they pull the muskie down, cut it open, and it's a metal bar. 
and everyone starts booing and er, and Dobbins is like, I did not know it had metal in it. They, you guys are just trying to fuck me. Sheriff pulls him off the stage and then goes over to Irv and the sister. What's her name? Rhonda. I don't know. I think it's Rhonda. And it's like, I found your dad's boat, but he's not on it. Have you seen your dad or your mom? And they're like, no, mom's at her sister's house. And again, this Irv kid has given a, a, a line that is supposed to be, you know, depending on how it was delivered, could have been very funny and tongue in cheek. But because this kid can't act his way out of a goddamn garbage can it sounds ridiculous he's like i don't know what's going on here something crazy i think something is fishy yeah that definitely got lost and then the the, the sheriff the sheriff has to respond and i know in the script it probably is like he's like okay kids calm down calm down but neither of these kids look like they give a rat's fucking ass they're just standing there stoically it's not like they're hysterical Oh. At Bab's house, Evelyn, Peter, and Anne are there searching, and they do find the tasseled fishing handle of uh, Spinner's fishing handle. So this automatically convinces them that that Spinner or Spinner is the killer because they're like, "Oh, I'm gonna blow the shit out of him." Everyone goes out into the woods, and they're all basically trying to get shit done. Like Anne, uh, what's his name, Evelyn? Like they're all kind of like they're getting ready to go find him and go hunt for Finner. All that Peter can do is pick up a walkie-talkie like a little bitch and start making those false accusations again to the cops and sulking. And he's like, now I know who the killer is and you have to go get him and blah, blah, blah. And the cops are like, okay, simmer down, cowboy. Like, he already made one false accusation. Uh, And it turns out that Finner is, again, not the killer. This is the second time that Peter has made this false accusation and his word really should not be taken seriously because he, he seems to have no idea what he's fucking talking about. No. And the sheriff rightfully dismisses him. And it's like, okay, I'll take a report. That's all I'm going to do. Peter is speaking. Peter is emotional. He's too emotional for his own good. He's getting people hurt. Yeah. Because now we do, we do go to spinner who is fishing on a boat right outside Lukey's place. He's dr- is it Spinner or is it Finner? Why, why do I have Spinner down? Finner. It's Finner. I'm pretty sure it's Finner. Finner, you're right. I knew I was going to. You know what? Both are fishing terms. Yeah. So there you go. It's it's Finner. You're right. It is. He's doing a real racist impersonation of a Rastafarian person, too. That, that didn't age very well. <laughs> no. So as Finner is out there, he starts to play his boombox with that stupid fucking song. Which Lukey is inside the the bait shop cleaning his fish when he hears the song and the cicadas start to go. And he immediately goes crazy, starts grabbing his head and screaming. And he grabs his fishing pole and runs outside. And we see that it's the same fishing pole with the giant lure on it. He casts it out to, to, and hits Finner in the side of the head with it. So it's a very abrupt killer reveal oh yeah it, it, it comes out of fucking nowhere so Luki is the killer the the lure actually rips finner's ear off which is very confusing as how, as to how that was executed so smooth like like he like he moves his hand and he looks down and half of his ear is cleanly shaven off 
Uh, and then he turns and you do see the area where like part of the ear was removed, but like, I'm very confused how it was such like a smooth cut. It looks like someone took like a sword and just swiped it off real quick. Finner jumps into the lake to get away and he's like trying to swim away and he, he's grabs onto the, to, to the boat to try to get back up to steady himself. And Lukey pulls the boat in. And as he gets the boat in and gets to Finner, he, it's off screen. We don't see it, but he hacks him in the face with a giant hook. This whole sequence, Troy, I got a lot of questions as to how this came to be. Um, Finner, you know, he sees the crazy old man with the with the with the hook come running at him, and he opts to turn and jump into the water while he's on this boat. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but if he could just manage to avoid the lure. Uh, long enough. Could he not t- sail this boat away yeah, to a yeah, safer place? Exactly. And then I understand why he tries to get back on the boat as he's, when he sees that the crazy man, Luki is pulling the boat to shore. Why would you, why wouldn't you just try to swim away? Like this dude's weapon is a goddamn fishing pole. It's pretty easy to get away from that. You're in the water. He's on land. I mean, but this, I, this point in the movie, I, I feel that, um, plausibility goes right out the window. I mean, it's already been kind of nonsensical, but at this point, things start happening uh, at a rate and in a way that is just very confusing to me as a viewer. Uh, A lot of it doesn't make any sense. Like, really, and we have seen some bad movies before where we're like, man, that was really stupid. That didn't make any sense. But this, like... I don't know who sat down and wrote some of this nonsense. These are not actions that I feel humans would make, uh, choices that people would make in these situations whatsoever. Uh, it doesn't seem like natural responses to certain things. And it happens like in a barrage. It's not just like one or two examples. Basically, a majority of the choices that are made by characters moving forward from this point seem very, very badly written i mean like honestly like i just it seems like the script like again someone needs you to look at this and say this just does not make sense at all we do get probably what is this, the cringiest scene in the film is this particular scene after after we see that lukey hits him in the face with that hook because we see him on the dock and lukey takes a giant stringer that has that metal point at the end that you use to string fish through the gills to hang them into the water so that when you catch a fish he shoves it up through finner's chin so it comes out of his mouth and he grabs the end of it and yanks it through his mouth and you see the it's this is disgusting this made me cringe and it actually looks pretty i have to say pretty decent yeah, it doesn't look amazing, but it doesn't look bad. No, it does not look bad, especially now that we have this this because uh, the version on Tubi guys is the uh, Blu-ray Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray cut that was that was made is the version you're watching on Tubi, so it's very clear. It does not look bad like at all. I've seen way worse effects in newer movies. It's very graphic, and you get a lot of it. Like you get a lot, and not only. Do you see like him forcing it up through his jaw and through his mouth? But then on top of that, you see him also like chopping off his hands and start grinding the meat from his hand into like a meat grinder for the fish. So he, he can feed it to his mouth. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's a pretty graphic scene. And, and it's surprising because so far this film has been pretty tame on the gore. 
So I do appreciate that they they have at least this one pretty graphic scene in there because this is an 80 slasher film. 80 slasher films were notorious and expected to have gore. So they 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 threw this gore scene in and I got to say in my opinion it looks pretty damn great. I think it's pretty well executed. Anne has gotten drunk back at the house as Evelyn and Peter look on, look down on her in shame. Evelyn's like, your girl got drunk. They just stand over her and shame. Yeah. Her. It, it is. So I feel weird. like it's, they're going to, I'm like, this is, is this going to turn into like, I spit on your grave where they start gang raping her or what? Because if they're just standing there staring and he's like, she's drunk. What should we do? At the same moment, Peter hears a boat. He runs out of the house and it is fucking Kirsten. Screaming something. I could not decipher one fucking word that she said. You're telling me that out of all the people who made it this far into the movie, Ugh. this broad's still alive? How? Are you seriously? How? And she got she found Finner's boat? Finner was just killed not that long ago. Where has she been the rest of the day? And she knows how to operate a boat? Like, I mean, she does not strike me as someone who would be able to manage that i mean no offense to the girl but she seems like she ain't too quick and i don't see you know driving boats as being a a talent that this girl possesses well you can't understand a word she says so she goes in the house and now this peter finally realizes that finner can't be the killer because he finds finner's ear in the boat with blood and all they can say is when he picks up the ear, he's like finner you poor son of a bitch i'm like dude isn't this Aren't these your friends? You guys are acting like <laughs> you're quick to accuse them of murder. When you find out they're probably dead, your reaction is a very stoic. Oh, well, that's, that's too bad. There are so many moments where Peter will like deliver a line and it sounds as though it should be followed up with the SNL Debbie Downer. Like, honestly, imagine if you would have had the line thinner. You poor son of a bitch. Womp. Womp. Like, he's just so fucking mopey. So now we know, or he knows, we've known all along that Finner isn't the killer, but now he knows. So who else is he? Now, so now he's going to, who is he going to accuse? Uh, there is this scene where Ludke goes out to his dock and he goes under the dock and pulls his stringer up. And we see that he has all of these dead bodies on the string or underneath the dock. They're, they're all like bloated and green. Uh, they look ridiculous. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get that fucking bloated and decomposed that quickly, particularly the fact that the Roger who seemed to be just killed like an hour earlier is already bloated and decomposed with his eyes bugged out. But he's keeping these, he's keeping these bodies under his dock on a stringer. Like they're real fish. I find, you know, I will say that, like, the effects, this makeup effect, while a bit exaggerated, they've now given me a few really big, like, makeup gore reveals that um, definitely exceed my expectations after the groundwork that's been set thus far. I mean, the, the kill that we had with Finner definitely, like, way more than I anticipated, looked really fucking good. And now these, like, bloated corpses... These like waterlogged bodies, like like yes, they look a bit exaggerated, but like I'll take it. Like I mean, like if you're gonna at least go all out and try to give me a like this level of effect, more power to you. I mean, it's not again not the best thing I've ever seen, but 
it it doesn't look half bad. I mean, I'll say that it's a pretty cool looking effect. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it looks bad. I mean, it's it it's definitely is way exaggerated. Like I said, there's no way the bodies would be that decomposed and look like that 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 quickly. But I get it for for visual effect, it, it actually works pretty well. Well, and for the like level of absurdity, even though they didn't lead into the humor of this film, it still possesses a level of absurdity that I think makes something like this more palatable. It does seem it still seems realistic within this universe, you know. Yeah. Uh, so Peter goes back to uh, inside to tell Evelyn and um, and Finner can't be the killer because someone killed him. Then there's a scene where he's playing on his keyboard and he comes to the realization that between the cicadas and the music that they've been listening to, it has created the perfect devil's tritone and that the combination of these frequencies must have set off the killer. The fact that this is the, the fact that they somehow are able to come to this conclusion for this reveal, it is, it is such a convoluted reasoning for this killer's motivation it like it almost loses me right there i mean i've also been struggling to keep up with the dialogue all this time so like by the time we got to this point and this came out of fucking peter's mouth as the reason as to why this guy's killing people i was like are you fucking kidding me like i'm supposed to buy this this is supposed to what keeps supposed to be what's keeping my ass in the seat to want to see the conclusion of this film how how is this rational it is so convoluted and it just goes on and on they talk about it forever um to the point where like irv and his sister Rhonda, or whatever the fuck her name is, the little, the little boy Irv and his sister come back to the house, and he comes in. He's like, "I hear you know something about missing people." Irv reveals that he knows that Lutke has metal plates in his head because when he was at the bait shop, he saw the metal plate and he saw the metal helmet that had the bullet in. And then you get um, Evelyn, who says, who compares it to a dude in Cleveland. Shout out to Cleveland uh, with a steel pelvis who claimed he got a hard time, uh, hard on every time a train drove by because of the vibrations. And so they start to piece together that because of this metal plate combined with the vibrations from the cicadas, the cicadas with their wings making the vibrations along with the note in that goddamn recording that everybody seems to possess in this motherfucking town. Um, when those powers combine, it just happens to be enough to drive Luki crazy and make him want to kill people. What my issue is, is the the volume of times that that has to happen to make him go crazy to kill this many people. That is a very specific combination to happen within a certain radius of one person. Well, it's also important to mention the fact that it's Peter's grandfather was killed 17 years ago and there hasn't been another murder for 17 years because cicadas basically come back every 17 years. So that's why there hasn't been murders. But yeah, the vibration and the music well, it's, it causes fucking Ludke to go nuts. I, I don't know. Go with it. It's it's. I mean, I'm going to go with it, but I'm not going to sit down and say that I think that this is a reasonable outcome for it's this movie. It's not. It's not. I it's mean. This, it, they could have done so many. Yeah. <laughs> come on. Yeah. Come on. Come on. Come, don't make me work that hard people for a movie called blood hook 
lest we forget we're watching a movie entitled Bloodhook. I shouldn't be working this hard. Troy, I gotta point out, you say cicadas, I say cicadas. It's cicadas. cicadas I, the, the, I also called thinner spinner, so please don't... Well, no, but I mean, you might be saying, I just, I have a very harsh Cleveland accent. My A's, I, I do, I see cicadas, because in Cleveland, maybe we have it a is very cicadas. harsh accent. Maybe cicadas, cicadas. Maybe I'm thinking of John Cicada. You maybe. Know, that this whole lovely, time, it's been John Cicada who's been causing been, this noise. It has been John, the lovely, what did he sing? That, oh, that song that was popular in the 90s. John Cicada, I don't know. Cicada, Cicada. You know what, folks? Come for me. They're probably. I'm probably. We're probably going to get a bunch of one star reviews now because I said spinner and pronounce cicada cicada. I'm here to. I'm holding you down with this one. I thought this movie was a crock of bullshit, but somehow I'm coming bringing the facts <laughs> between uh between the cicadas and the the proper name pronunciation. Oh, here we go. We I might we might as well not even release this episode. I've ruined it. <laughs> Peter and Evelyn uh, go to Lukey's bait shop to snoop around. They sure aren't quiet about it. They turn the lights on. They do everything. It's not like they're trying to be inconspicuous. They're not trying to be conspicuous. They're turning the lights on. They're fucking making noise. Fucking Evelyn's blowing a goddamn horn. They do find Bev's wedding ring, which Evelyn says, this is my Bev's wedding ring. And they find a buckets of guts in the refrigerator. Uh, there is a line here in which Peter says, well, first of all, Evelyn's like, oh, we got to tell the police. And Peter says to him, uh, no, he, there's no way that the sheriff's going to buy it. And I'm sorry, but these are buckets of, <laughs> of, of, human, <laughs> of human remains. Like, he better buy something because, like, there's no way that the people are going to overlook a, a human lo- in like large intestine in a bucket. He says, he says, there's no body. <laughs> yeah, there's no body. He'll never buy it. There's some. There's buckets of intestines. I'm sure that those don't look like they came out of a fish. Peter is a moron. Yeah, I'm. Sh- I'm sure the sheriff would be able to come to that little bait shop, look in the bucket and be like, yeah, those are human intestines. There's probably uh, that is a human intestine. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Meanwhile, we've got Anne meditating again. Well, she, she wakes up drunk and she sees Kristen there and then she, yeah, she goes down to meditate. And at this point, you know, this meditation sequence that that takes place here is uh, quite long. It goes on and it builds. And I, I literally thought to myself, if Anne fucking dies here and Kristen somehow manages to survive, I'm going to be pissed. I'm going to be pissed because Kristen has been nothing but obnoxious and keeps trying to sleep with Anne's boyfriend, who is not that desirable. So she's just doing it as a spite fuck. Um, so I I really thought I was going to lose Anne here. I really did. And there's this whole elongated sequence of her like on the edge of this pier meditating and how she doesn't hear this frumpy little man uh, pull up in his boat clickety clunkety like making noises and sloshing all about i don't understand it all because she's deep into meditation roger have you never meditated before i'm meditated but i would still hear it if a man was docking right beside me clunkily bobbling over towards me this scene goes on forever uh, basically what happens is she gets hooked as she's sitting there meditating. She gets hooked in the hand. Oh, it does look painful. It does with a giant lure and she's able to get it out. She runs up to that 
fucking cart thing and has to push the button for the cart to come down. My question is, wouldn't the cart already be down because she just rode it down? Well, there's a few things about this scene that I got some questions about. First of all, so she she does something smart. After she gets free of the hook, she snares it on the uh, like the ladder uh, um, on the edge of the um, the dock, like because there's you know a ladder that comes out that you would climb it out of the water. So she snares it on there, so he can't he can't reel it back. So he has to sail up and get his hook back while she runs over to the the goddamn cart, pushes the button, and she's standing there waiting for about twenty minutes as this fucking cart slowly decline or like makes its way down the decline of the hill it is comedic how slow this thing moves because it keeps cutting back and every time it cuts back there's like a low ominous like like tone every time it cuts back and it cuts back like seven times because the thing just keeps slowly approaching meanwhile the old dude is floating he's like floats over into view and like gets ready to hook her because the thing is still just making its way downtown and so he like goes to hook her and she's standing in the doorway of the like the little shack on the edge of the dock and the scene cuts to black you assume that he's hooked her but it's like girl all you've got to do is step back inside of that little shed and like step and step out of the doorway and that guy can't get you like you just play cat and mouse with them you're really like you could step out of harm's way just by taking a step to the left He's like 30 feet away. I just got to put, he's like 30 feet away. And Anne could easily just step out of the way. It's very confusing to me. Yeah. Peter and uh, Evelyn get back to the house and he goes down to the dock and finds the boom box with that stupid fucking tape in it. Vicky Lee. Uh, he, he realizes that Anne must have been caught by Lukey. So he runs back to Evelyn and tells him, Lukey has Anne. We have to get her. Evelyn's like, yeah, but we need to be smart about it. We can't just rush over there and take him by surprise because he'll kill her. So let's come up with a plan. Dwayne shows up and they tell him that they think Lukey did it. And he's very like adamant that Lukey would never kill anybody. And Evelyn's like, no, we were there. We saw fucking guts and buckets. He says, here's the ring that you helped that you helped me get Bev. It was in the his fish tank. And Dwayne's like, oh, that could have just come off the lake. And then that little Irv says. But I have the magic bullet. And he gives it to Wayne. And Wayne's like, where did you get that? And he was like, loot keys. And this magic bullet, Roger, is important because this is the bullet that was shot into uh, Peter's Peter's grandfather that was never removed from his back. So now they realize that this bullet had to have been cut from the grandfather's back by Ludke. Again, convoluted, but that's how they realize, that's what convinces Wayne that Ludke is the killer because there's no other way he would have this bullet. There's a moment here right before the sequence where Paul slowly and solemnly strolls onto the dock where he finds the stereo and concludes that Anne has been con- uh, captured. And he and Evelyn then have a moment where they confront each other and have an argument via stage combat where they like struggle with each other through a whole mini monologue. And it's one of the worst executed like 
film struggles I've ever seen in my life. These two masters of the craft are going like back and forth, like throw like struggling like in place back and forth without actually trying to like injure each other. It's so awkward. It was a moment that just really popped out as being bad to me. I needed to acknowledge it. Uh, I do like that finally now convinced that Leroy is the killer. Irv now agrees to assist uh, and that his suggestion is to lure Lutke by using Peter as bait. In my mind, I was thinking, please, God, just let him die due to some horrible accident and let let the others take over as the major characters. Peter, I'm saying let Peter die. Like, just put him out of his misery. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, you said, yeah, so Wayne, Wayne, you said Herb. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. We're, we're getting these names all mixed up. That's because there's too many goddamn characters in the, this film. So many people are still alive. None of them make any kind of a positive impact. No. So back at the bait shop, Anne is trying to use psychology on Ludke by telling him that she knows he didn't mean to kill anybody. And why doesn't he ask himself what his true feelings about killing is? Does he really need to kill her? You need to look deep in yourself. Leroy and ask yourself, do you really need to kill me? Okay, I don't know how this broad is staying so calm through this. I would kill her. To, I, at this point, I would kill her to shut well, her Well, that and also he is clearly not being receptive to what she has to say. So at a certain point, like she needs to just shut the fuck up and start struggling because she just sits there without moving an inch and basically allows him to put her into like a little cool, like a, a little cooler. And she's like, she's like, Leroy. Are you there, Leroy? <laughs> and it's, I mean, this girl's going to die. Like, this is not doing anything to help her. Oh, and then this next moment. See, there, this this whole finale could literally have 15 minutes trimmed off of it. Oh, my God. It is it is one it's of the worst so finales long. I've ever seen. It's, it's so, so long. long. Okay, so Peter pulls up with his boombox. He's supposed to try to lure uh, Ludke out, but he actually chickens out. He pussies the fuck out. His girlfriend is in there. His girlfriend is in there, and he is basically put in a position where he has the opportunity to save her. And he he fails. Like, he doesn't do anything. No, he goes home and almost sleeps with Chris. Yes! Then he, like, lays down. Yes. Well, okay, first of all, he's sitting in this boat after having done absolutely nothing. Everyone is aware that he's failed, by the way. Like, Dwayne is, like, that fucking chicken you know they're all mad at him that he didn't do what he said he was going to do and then to top it off leroy like pleasantly like sails by in the background and like he, he's like hello neighbor like he he waves to him and it, it looks like as though he has something wrapped in a piece of fabric that was from um Anne's dress do you notice that like at the edge of the boat and all peter can do is go like you bastard like yell at him like he doesn't do anything and then, and then he proceeds to go back to the cabin and try to sleep with Anne's friend, uh, Kirsten, <laughs> who's been trying to whore her way into his life this entire length of this film. He, he's like, well, you know what? I might as well just give into it. Let my girlfriend go off and die. So I might as well just fuck this chick instead. But last minute, before he gives into the seduction, he goes and grabs his fishing pole. Yeah, it's such a weird, like you're literally letting your girlfriend sit in this bait shop where you know this man has slaughtered and dismembered several people, including your two other best friends that you don't give a shit about, apparently. Yeah, so 
he does absolutely nothing. He he grabs his fishing pole and he goes fishing apparently, but he goes to um cuts to Leroy Lutke winning the Muskie Madness tournament. And Dwayne shows up with his gun and is like going to shoot him. He's like screaming to the crowd. He's a murderer. Uh, and the sheriff gets Lutke and's like or gets um Wayne and's like you need to go home Wayne. Lutke is a hero. And Wayne like starts crying and like leaves, but then there's this like karate kid mr miyagi moment where wayne is teaching peter how to cast a fishing pole correctly oh yeah uh, it's like a like a t- like a tender bonding moment oh between the two I, of them. it needs to be cut out of this oh fucking my movie god at this peter point. is like he's like fishing with sunglasses on i guess like maybe now he feels like a badass and he's like teach me how to fish like my grandfather and, and uh he steps up next to him and like starts helping him like learn how to fish and at this point i think is there no like remorse for failing your potentially fallen girlfriend is there no sadness is there no other emotion is there no do you not feel any anger he's standing there calm and cool as a cucumber just fishing and there's this moment this really cheesy moment where wayne calls him van cleese and peter's like don't call me van cleese yet i've got to fight for it it really is like, it's like, what what the fuck is happening? Why is Peter fishing? There are way, I mean, call the police. Call the, do, I mean, be proactive. This is not the outcome we need right now. No, well, 24 hours after he knows Anna's been abducted, the next night, 24, it's literally been 24 hours since he, he knows that Luke has had Anne. And can we just talk about like how just contrived that whole thing is? Because this Ludke guy has killed every single character in the film immediately, immediately when he gets them. So why would he keep Anne alive for 24 hours? Because of her psychobabble, maybe? I No, because he doesn't even, he's not even paying half attention. It's for, it's so we could have this convoluted ending. Oh, yeah, oh this ending. And like Peter, he, he, you know, he comes out for his revenge. He comes not with a gun, not with a knife, not with a broadsword. But with a goddamn fishing pole, and I, I if I couldn't, uh, I could not think of a, a stupider ending. <laughs> if I try, this ending takes the cake. He has access to guns, knives, sharp axes. Please, please, please. He has access to police. But he he takes his fishing pole and he goes to Lukey's that night. He uses the radio with that damn song that we keep mentioning to lure Lukey out. And he comes right out. He comes right out. They have a literal lure battle. They have a lure, a lure battle, fishing to lure the death. Out. Yes, Lukey casts and hits Peter in the chest. It does look painful. And so Peter retaliates and throws his lure, and it actually hits Lukey in the neck. And it's like really disgusting. It's like yeah, you can see the the skin being pulled and shit. But poor Peter passes out from his wound right away too it's the first time he's been injured in the midst of this duel at all over the course of this movie uh and within seconds he's collapsed over the edge of the boat and he, he wakes up inside the bait shop he gets right to his feet <laughs> the boom box is there and i want to know why would luke have grabbed the boom box from the boat that peter arrived on and brought it in the bait shop with him out of all the questions you could ask, Troy, that's the one you're going to ask? You're not going to ask how these two men should just execute a, a seemingly effective lure duel? Like, that's not the question that really, how that managed to come to fruition? 
I mean, at this point, the stereo is the least of my concerns. Well, because it becomes prominent because it's it's sitting right next to him, and it was he turns it on, and Lutke starts to fucking freak out again. Uh, it, dist- it distracts him so Peter is able to open the refrigerator and get Anna. How he knew she was in there, I don't know because he and how she's not frozen to <laughs> death. It's been a full twenty four hours in that fridge with no air. How is she not suffocated and frozen? <laughs> Tell me, how is she going to breathe with no air? Like that Jordan Sparks song. But this film could have ended so many ways, though, Troy. I mean, they could have come up with so many creative ways to end it, and it literally like is at this point now where he just removes girl from the fridge. This guy fucking runs out distracted by the music. He knocks it in the water, so he starts to like regain his composure. But then the cops pull up just in the nick of time, and he runs from the building and seems to just dive into the lake. Like he just apparently just swims away. Is that right? That's exactly how it ends. He gets ready to stab uh peter but yeah he hears the cop siren and he takes off running and he runs out of the bait shop into the woods into the lake they must have thought that this was going to be set up for a sequel <laughs> because this killer does get away they must must have thought we've got a really good series on our hands oh yeah we need bloodhook 2 instead of muskies it might be carp oh bloodhook 3 could be bluegill salmon <laughs> oh god that's bloodhook 4 salmon but yeah, that's basically the end of it. We do get a shot of Peter, Ann, and Kirsten driving away. They stop for one final gaze at the giant muskie before they just leave town. And my question, Roger, is these three basically are witnesses to murder. Are they yeah. literally just allowed to leave? They're they're just going to leave town. Their two friends were were murdered. They were almost murdered. Are they really going to just be allowed to leave? Again, out of all the questions I could ask, that's the least of my concerns. I'd say, I like how they all stop and they look at that motherfucking giant fish with such longing in their eyes. Especially Kirsten, who I don't know how the fuck that broad man should make her way through this movie and survive. Like, somehow that girl's alive. If anyone I thought was going to die a horrible death, it was her. We get the final shot of the sheriff showing up to Wayne, asking he asking Wayne if he could help him because Lukey's not going to be able to survive losing that much blood. And Wayne knows the woods better than anyone. And Wayne hesitantly says, I will help the best I can. And then we get this shot of the camera moving through the woods, through the lake. And it ends on Lukey screaming as the cicadas cicadas start buzzing and the film ends two and two hours later two hours later left open-ended room for a sequel uh which we all need yeah why not they're making a sequel to the mutilator that came out uh, right around this time so hey i mean give me a 2022 produced retelling of this story let's see what they can do with this one yeah, I don't think the film. I don't think this film did nearly as well as they expected it to do. Um, I th- it maybe was set up for a sequel, but it didn't do well at all, so it just never happened. Shocking! This is shocking to me that this film did not do well. All I'm going to say about this film is there are lo- there's lots of quirkiness to this film that really makes it stand apart from other 80s slasher films. I like a lot of the characters. Uh, even even the characters I don't like, I find them engaging 
and so distinct from each other that you don't really confuse anybody in this cast with, with one another. Uh, each of the characters are very distinct and there for a very distinct purpose. Uh, I also feel like the film has almost a very, uh, oh, ethereal feel to it because it plays this nonsense so seriously that it's almost like you're, it's almost otherworldly when you're watching this film. It's like, is this real? Like, it just seems so, I don't know. Um, I also like the very regional aspect of this film. You know, I grew up in the Midwest fishing. My parents were huge fishers. So a lot of this stuff I was very familiar with in terms of the fishing terms and just being going to these small fishing towns in Minnesota as a child and, and fishing and realizing that fishing is a huge part of the economy of these towns and how the towns people take it so seriously. So a lot of this really it was familiar to me. And I, I, is this a well-made film? No, there are moments where the film is well-made. There's moments where stuff is inspired. The cinematography is pretty decent. The film, especially with the new, you know, version looks great, but this film suffers tremendously from not being edited. And like I said, there's just a lot of stuff that <sighs> plays way too seriously for the material. However, I will say that I do find it one of the more odd, unusual slasher films that came out of the 80s. It's definitely unusual. It's definitely unique. Um, I'll give it credit in the fact that it, it, it I think they really wanted to carve their own um, individual uh imprint in the at that time you know wide world of the slasher genre uh by you know by being something that felt uh unlike anything else you know it still follows the slasher tropes but it's original in the setting the uh or at least not maybe maybe not the setting but but the event that's it's taking place around and the characters involved and and everything you know playing into fishing like the fact they're able to make a slasher about fishing my God, like I never would have thought that this would be a thing, but here we are. Um, so, I mean, the fact they're able to do that, I mean, I give them credit there, but I mean, it's just such a severe m misdirection and how they handled the tone of the movie. Like it, it just kind of all over the place. Like you were really right in what you said earlier about it feels like it was written to be one thing and it was shot to be something different. And that really like is glaringly obvious because when you have a kill, for example, such as the one that took place earlier in the film with the woman who's being spun around in a circle as the as the um, fishing line is wrapping around her before yank her into the water. It feels like it feels like it should be slapsticky, like it should be something comedic, and yet they try to handle it as like suspenseful. And you know the, the, that right there was a moment where you know he looks, Peter looks out the window, and he's like, "Oh gosh, something just happened! Like she's missing. You know, she's gone now. I just saw something." Uh, it's treated as like something dramatic. And I really feel like these moments, if they were addressed with more of a sense of humor, would have probably hit better with, with the audiences. But what you end up having is kind of just like a really boring, kind of lame concept that uh, rarely hits. And the only time it does hit is because they choose to do something kind of shocking in the sense of like a gore reveal or the makeup or what have you. They do do a few things that do kind of take you by surprise. And so it doesn't fail in all areas, but you know, I saw this movie get a lot, get slammed when you posted that you we were going to cover it. A lot of our listeners uh, 
had mixed feelings on it. And a lot of our listeners really played it off as like, oh, fuck, are you kidding me? You guys are going to cover that movie. And I can totally see why. I can completely understand why this movie has some hate because it just, I don't think it knows what it wants to be. No, I would agree with everything you said. I, 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 I just feel like there's a, there's something at least for me, that's a little bit appealing with this film, even though I know it's not a good film. I know it has, it's very problematic. I just, there's something about it. There's just like this quirkiness that is undeniable. And I was finding myself, to be honest with you, liking it more with each viewing um, because it really is unlike any slasher film from the eighties. Um, so I would, I would suggest it to 80 slasher fans. If you haven't seen it um, just to go into it with low expectations, it's, it's, it's not like anything it's that you've seen. So just go in low expectations and at least say you saw it, it again. It's a long film. It could have been edited. In fact, I, I know that the, uh, VHS version that first came out was edited down. The, the, the original version that came out on VHS was only 91 minutes. Oh, uh, thank it, God. It had about 20 minutes cut from it, but unfortunately that version is not, you know, hasn't been in existence for a while. So this new version that vinegar syndrome released and that's like on Tubi and that you can digitally stream is the director's cut. That is the almost two hour version. Um, so I think maybe with a nice edit down, the film would have been, a lot more tolerable and a lot more enjoyable, but it still is going to suffer from that tonal inconsistency. Yeah. I mean, I, I, that's blood hook. Yeah. This is a movie I went expecting to have more fun with than I did. Like, I mean, reviewing it was really entertaining because it's just so absurd, but I expected to have more chuckles and chortles, you know, and here we are leaving it feeling kind of dry. It really is. It's a very dry approach that doesn't do it a lot of favor. But there's still there is still something to be enjoyed. I will say that it's not it's not the worst film we've ever covered by any means. No. Oh no. Oh no. And I think the film also suffers by casting a terrible actor in the lead that we're supposed to care about through the entire film, and that ends up literally doing nothing in the movie at all. I mean, he doesn't even kill the the main villain, which was his setup for the entire film was to have this battle with the final killer who killed his grandfather, but it doesn't happen. Uh, and the guy, the guy cannot act very well at all. So that doesn't help. But, uh, but that's blood hook, Roger. We did it. Um, yeah, we <laughs> Guys, did it. Thank you. We yeah. Thank it. you for listening. You're probably going to look at the time on this episode and be like, they should have edited it down. Be like, this is just as long as the movie itself. It's longer than the movie itself. So yeah, so that's Blood Hook. You want to really quick, so we can wrap it up. You want to really quick mention what our next film is going to be, and then we can let them go. Yeah, guys, I've decided. Um, you know, normally I go with the more modern titles, but I thought I wanted to kind of dive into your your era of choice. So I um I opted to lean for uh the nineteen eighty four mutant. Uh, it was originally released as Night Shadows, and this film stars a uh, one Lee Montgomery. Who some of us may know um, uh, as the title character from the 1972 uh, uh, drama thriller Ben, which is the sequel to the film Willard. Remember Willard, the original Willard? Yeah. So this kid played Ben in the film Ben, which is the sequel. Now he's in Mutant, and uh, he's also known as uh, the the guy that danced with Sarah Jessica Parker and girls just want to have fun. So what? I mean, what more do we want? Um, but yeah, I um. I figured I wanted something that, you know, did have a bit of a loose kind of comedic tone to it. Uh, it. It's very much of that era. 
but you know what? There are some moments in this film that also take me by surprise. I hope it takes our listeners by surprise as well if they haven't seen it. So check it out. Mutant 1984. Mutant 1984. I have not seen this one. It'll be a first time viewing for me. So I'm excited. Guys, thank you for sticking with us for two plus hours to hear us ramble about Bloodhook, where we have where I at least mispronounce names, mispronounced words, but I'm still asking for that five-star rating uh, because I'm entertaining. We're entertaining, right? It's endearing. endearing. Uh, But guys, thank you again. Five stars. uh, Go to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a a rating, a review, and check out our Patreon. We have some great stuff coming up for the end of the month for our Patreon episodes. So yeah, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast. But that's it, guys. Thank you. Uh, Go catch a muskie. And until next week with Mutant, we shall chat with you later. Goodbye.